everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of Lorebeards. Uh, apologize that there was nothing last week. Had a lot of family stuff going on and there was Scarborough Fair and just a whole bunch of nonsense happening around here. But uh, we're here this week. I'm very, very excited for this episode. We've got, I, I don't know how we keep finding them, but we found another Andy <laughs> <laughs> for, for Warhammer. Uh, so Andy, if you'd be so kind as to just kind of introduce yourself uh, for everyone who may not be familiar with you and we'll take it from there. Uh, sure. So yeah, my name is Andy Leesk. Um, I'm my actual day job is I'm a teacher. Uh, I'm a head of English. Um, but in terms of Warhammer, um, I'm a writer. Um, I wrote for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Fourth Edition, part of the core book. Uh, a lot of the starter set, um, various parts of Enemy Within. Before I kind of moved on from that. Uh, nowadays, I'm part of Rookery Publications, so I do the weekly Inside the Rookery streams with uh, Andy Law and Lindsay Law, who you've had on on previous uh, Lowerbeards episodes, uh, as well as we're working on on the Cold Crime campaign and, and various other things that are still uh, bubbling away with Rookery Publications. And I'm also playing in Andy Law's Lawhammer uh, actual play of the Enemy Within, playing Father Leopold, a warrior priest of Sigmar. Yeah, oh, it's such a good character. It's uh, I I love I love Father Leopold so much. Um, well, that's excellent. So uh, you've been involved in like a lot of really important things, especially for people that are coming in to uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay for the first time, which is happening a lot right now. Uh, which is awesome. Like I'm I'm getting tons of messages, especially from people whether they're watching like the series that I'm doing or the series that y'all are doing. Uh, which if you all haven't, you should be watching the Lawhammer series. It is like it's basically like the the critical role type version of of Wolfrop, as far as I'm concerned. Um, even even if they're uh, constantly fighting against microphones and cameras, but it's 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 <laughs> it's so every, wonderful. Every, every week we make marginal gains, right? Yeah. Every week we get a, we get a little bit better, yeah, a little, but yeah, a little closer. The biggest issue for us is space, actually, because we, we're literally playing inside Andy Law's living room. Um, and he's, you know, set up a frame and we've got a big table, but all the mics and cables are so close to each other that <laughs> the interference. Is, huddle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so, uh, but um, working on kind of the intro and stuff, you've been heavily involved with Uberstrike, uh, I assume. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, could you kind of talk to us a little bit about what was kind of the idea behind kind of was starting with Uberstrike and what do you think? really sets it up as such a perfect starting place for people to kind of begin with their Warhammer experience. Cool. Well, yeah, it, at the point we were, we were doing the starter set, so obviously the core book um, was sort of done and was sort of in PDF format and we, and we were working on the starter set. And, you know, th there have been a, a lot of good starter sets for RPGs over the years, and particularly there have been a lot of really good ones recently. And I would like to, to think that, that, you know the the, the Wifrup one maybe contributed to some of the changes that you get in in other RPG starter sets now, because for a long time starter sets were just designed for people who were new to roleplay. Um, so if you already played Wifrup, if you had the core book and you already knew the world, you, you know why would you need the starter set, right? You, you mm. already understand roleplaying, and it was a conscious decision by Andy and I when we wrote. And it is important, like our our writing relationship, we very much are writing partners. So, um, and and Lindsay as well, in that um. One of us may have written it, but we have all all of our DNA is, is in it. You know, there's a lot of a lot of back and forth. But when we were were coming up with that, what we wanted was the starter set to to yes be accessible to people who've never played before. So it has this wonderful adventure from T.S. Lucar um, uh, making the rounds, which is deliberately 
you know, a slightly more railroady perhaps than more experienced gamers might like, because it's meant to be. It's for new players to bring them into the world, to, to force them to see the different things that, that make Warhammer Warhammer so they can then go on and, and play something more expansive. But at the same time, we wanted to have material there. So if you were an experienced GM or you had an experienced party, it was still worth your while using the, the starter set. Um, or if you ran through making the rounds and you wanted to carry on playing in Uber Strike, you, you could. And I've had over the years lots of lovely people message me saying that's exactly what happened. They intended right. to just do making the rounds <laughs> and then run onto enemy within. And they just got bogged down in Uber Strike because there was so much stuff to do that they that they stayed there, which is which is lovely. Um so yeah, so that, that was our rationale. Um in terms of why Uber Strike, um Obviously, part of that you have to acknowledge the the appeal of Vermintide. Um, the, yeah, you know the fact it's such, that it's such a yeah. lovely crossover uh, there. Yeah. Like it, it really feels like there's been a lot of back and forth between yeah. uh, y'all's original writings and uh, yeah. the Fat Shark team. Oh, absolutely. They were they were terrific. They were so friendly, so helpful. Andy mentioned when, when he was on, um, they sent us over like a developer build so we could just fly around uh, yeah. their 3D model of Uberstrike. <laughs> and and that was so helpful um, for, for me particularly. Um, so I, I have a, a, a very minor sort of, um, a sort of neurodiversity thing. I have, I have what's called aphantasia. Mm. Um, so I have yeah, virtually no... Very well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I see nothing. I'm, and I only found this out like three, four years ago. I thought everybody was like that. Um, and Father Loop World's an auger. <laughs> I know, right? Like, <laughs> well, what's up with that? Yeah. Um, but I definitely found for situating myself in the geography, that plus the kind of map that, that Andy gave me, like those two things were really useful for me as, as I was writing. Um, and it's it's an ideal setting, I think, because somewhere like Altdorf or Nuln or Middenheim is, is almost too big, too iconic mm. for a starting adventure. Be overwhelming. Um, every district in Altdorf is like the size of Uberstrike. It would just be, be too much. But also because of the political situation that's being set up for the enemy within, um, with what, what's just happened in Uberstrike. So with the young Freud's having been kicked out, uh, the Altdorf troops having swept in and taken control, um, what you've got there as a, as a setting is this incredibly rich like febrile place where there is kind of a power vacuum going on um mm. the, like chaos has, has kind of entered with a small c rather than a big c although also with a big yeah but with a small c as well um so so you know you've got in that city you have got you know people who were loyal to the young freuds and, and thinks what's happened was a travesty you've got the actual altdorfers who've come in and you know who knows what they think about, about it you've got other people in the city who just want to get on with with living their lives you've got people who are deeply troubled by by what all of this might mean to them kind of socially and then also because there's a power vacuum you've got others expanding to fill that so you've got the likes of the underworld boss the baron who's sort of in the slums underneath the bridge you've got the low haven clan of, of halfling which are sort of my thing I'm proudest of uh, of having come up with, um, with them kind of expanding their <laughs> yeah. kind of underworld empire as well. So um, yeah, it, it's it's an ideal setting for telling stories, um, and it was a lot of fun to, to write because of that. Yeah, I, I think what you said earlier is such a key uh, point as well for new and experienced players alike. Is that Uberstrike really is kind of one of these amazing things where like it can be very simple. It can be a very straightforward experience to like get a new GM and new players used to the setting and kind of get you ready to be shipped off further. But it also like, man, you can spend literally an entire campaign in Uber Strike. Yeah. <laughs> like multiple years of real world time in Uber Strike very easily. Yeah. Um, well, absolutely. Cause you've, you've got the core 
story there like in, in making the rounds um and then there's all the pre-gen characters and they've all got their own mm. like sort of mini adventure hook that you could go off and kind of finish off their personal stories but then you know a, a very clear part of the brief was that every single location would have two uh, adventure seeds in it um and some of those are incredibly minor simple little things and mm. some of those are potentially an entire 10 session i really know, kind of, i really want to do yeah. a campaign at some point around the bog king the bog king is such an awesome okay. <laughs> such a like one of my favorite potential characters i genuinely feel like andy and i were slightly delirious at the point we were writing the bog king um because we'd, we'd sort of come up with it and then we just kept for the rest of that night and, and gen- honestly ever since we would just every now and then just look at each other and go bog king like, and it just yeah. He, he's, but he's he's that perfect mix of genuinely terrifying but also at, for anyone that doesn't know the yeah. bucket there is literally a giant octopus monster that is freakishly <laughs> intelligent has like psychic communication abilities that lives in the sewers of altdorf and he can absolutely like slither tentacles up through toilets and kill people when, <laughs> when they're least yeah. expecting it <laughs> and, and he had to, and that, that was actually the, that was one of the fun sections like i um Initially, when I was writing, like I knew I was going to be writing the locations in the town, and I knew I was going to be writing locations in the duchy around the the, the town as well. Um, but then Andy was like, "Oh, let's put a section in with some cults that are that are kind of hanging around," and that, that was a lot of fun coming up with with kind of what those different cults would be. And we didn't want them just to be obvious chaos cults. Like there right. are some in there, your, your classic archetypal Warhammer chaos cults. Um, lots of sort of Zinchian stuff going on because that's my that's my favorite uh, favorite god to kind of, kind of play with. Mm. But um, but then we were like, actually having say like the yellow bellies in as the kind of Skaven uh, sort of collaborating former slave sort of spy network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was all fun. And then Bog King was, was, the, was the left field one. And we're like, it's so good. And it is, again, it is consistently the one whenever people have used it. Andy and I get messages on Discord or on Twitter or whatever, just saying how it's, much fun they've had with, with that, the Bog King. I, I, I very much slot the, the Bog King in my one day Fishman. Like, listen, when Total War, <laughs> when Total War comes out with the Fishman race, <laughs> the Bog King is a starting character. Uh, perfect. We, we even we even had plans. Obviously, we'd left, uh, weren't working with Cubicle Seven by the time uh, they got to do the Altdorf book. But had we done it, our plan was to upgrade the Bog King to the Bog Emperor, the um, Bog and, Emperor. And, <laughs> and have him having moved to Altdorf and become even more powerful. But um, amazing, yeah, but sadly, was was never to be. Yeah. <laughs> maybe in Lawhammer, he'll show up. Yeah, maybe. God, I hope not. No, yeah. I'd be on the receiving end of it. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, kind of to touch back on something earlier you mentioned because it's it's a subject I love hearing more about because it's it's so rarely heard about especially for people uh a lot of the people watching lore beers tend to be um their first interaction with Warhammer tends to be through the Total War series and they're like slowly but surely kind of getting into other things out, out uh beyond that where they're like learning about the role play or you know the and the novels and everything with the old world coming back uh but something that not enough people get to hear about because it doesn't really show up in total war and the actual battle game of course are halflings um which i love the halflings they're very very important in my opinion even though like if it kind of felt like games workshop created them and then realized that they didn't really make sense for when warhammer started to get darker and darker in like seventh and eighth edition so they kind of got pushed over um but uh they are such a fundamental part of the roleplay experience and really the setting itself. Like the Empire isn't the Empire, in my opinion, without the halflings. Um Absolutely. and like and they have that relationship with the ogres and all that stuff. But I think my favorite aspect of them is when you have criminal halflings. 
<laughs> and I was hoping you could kind of uh, run people through what kind of led you um, when talking about the low haven specifically, like what led you to go, okay, I want them to be halflings and this is, this is how they're kind of going to develop into a threat. How do you make halflings threatening? Well, so I suppose one of the, if you, if you go back like far enough in terms of the genesis of Warhammer um, and, you know, you, you spoke a little bit with this, but Lindsay actually, when it, when it came to elves that, you know, the, the the influence was not subtle in the early days of Warhammer, right? right? It was it was Michael Moorcock and it was Tolkien smashed together, mm. and then the role playing game came along and smashed Call of Cthulhu into that as well. Um, and you, you know, you, you look at, at around about the time of of kind of Wifford first edition, like that's what it is. It is it is Michael Moorcock's idea of kind of chaos and everything. It is Tolkien and it is Call of Cthulhu smashed together in this pseudo European kind of fantasy world. Um, but over the years, and that's not a bad thing. Like that, you know, no, no, it's great. Like, like, like it, it, they took inspiration from great sources and made a brilliant world. But as time went on, they want you know they obviously wanted to develop it in a way that would make that world more unique. So um, the Warhammer elves are not the same as Tolkien elves. Mm. That may have been the genesis of them, but they're not any anymore. And similarly with halflings, like obviously their genesis is the the hobbits of of kind of the Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings. Um, but they're very much not that anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 where they began, but that's very much not not where they are. And there's various things like on the like kind of meta scale, like on on the, the kind of you know the, the entire history of the of the Warhammer world. Um, there's the idea of of you know what were they created by the old ones for? Like what's their purpose? Right? They've, they've right. got resistance. They've got resistance to chaos. They've got you know were, were they just there to kind of to endure to you know to kind of be like little worker bees almost that, that could kind of handle the fact that, that the world was kind of falling to chaos or, or whatever. I was always less interested in that. I'm more interested in, okay, so if, you, if you're playing a halfling, like, like you know, what is it? What, what does that mean? Like, what does it right. mean to be a halfling? And how do you, like the tension that you, we've always got when, when we're writing in, particularly in a world like Warhammer, that is so well known, that has so many influences that it wears in its sleeves, is you want to simultaneously play into the stereotypes but also subvert and, and resist them yeah. at the same time difficult you balance but it's uh yeah War y'all like the wolf rip especially does such a good job of striking it on a regular yeah. basis which is just yeah. stupid impressive yeah <laughs> it's uh it's, it's hard but it's but it's a it's a definite certainly the beginning of fourth edition it's a definite design goal it was a definite like you know how, how do we exploit that and then sometimes you want people to assume that someone is the baddie but they're not the baddie but then sometimes actually they are the baddie yeah. and <laughs> with, with, with halflings you know the, the, the classic thing as they kind of evolved like there's obviously what they were in, in Tolkien and, you know, particularly Bilbo Baggins was a burglar, except he wasn't really a burglar. That's just what Gandalf said he was. Yeah, Warhammer's um, like, but and, what if he you know, actually... <laughs> yeah, and, and and certainly, like, you know, like halfling rogues and halfling thieves have, have become, are a thing in D&D in &D mm. as well. Um, and, you know, for a long time in, in Wifrup games, the, the rules sort of balance like reflected that right like they had the right stats to be good at being thieves right they were sneaky they were good at stealth they were good at picking pockets they had, you know th so the the rules were saying yeah halflings are good at being thieves but there wasn't really that cultural explanation in terms of why would halflings beyond just the need to survive like why would they be like thieves why would they be good mm. at that um and so so we, we looked at that so when we were thinking about their their kind of culture that, that they have um and the idea that they they live in these clans so that you have um like i think we, we settled on eight clans that were kind of dominant in the right clan you yeah. might get occasional mm -hmm. other ones but there, there were sort of the eight sort of main ones and those were you know 
you again your broad stereotypes in terms of like like kind of what their role was in society. You had this lot were like the noble ones, this lot were like the merchant ones, this lot were the shady ones. And um but like we're like, well why why would they have that clan structure? Um you know, there there are lots of halflings. And we, we we went down this route of the idea of them living like cheek by jowl with each other. That they almost were like pack animals. Yeah. Um mm. that, that they they loved being packed in closely with with their kind of kin and everything belonged to the clan everything belonged together there was a sense of collective ownership this kind of almost slightly anarcho-communist kind of streak uh, mm. running through them <laughs> yeah. where all, all all property is that Which, essentially it's such a um, that's such a brilliant strike from like the old because like you know they're halflings of the older black library novels and they're just like oh halflings are they're foul and they're thieves and it's like it's not yeah. always the case but it's often the case but that's such a yeah clever way to explain it of like well no they don't think they're stealing like from their perspective it's just exactly. everything belongs to everybody so why is it yeah. a big deal you, you 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 had a sausage i was hungry so i took your sausage and i ate it okay and if, and if you were hungry and i had a sausage you'd take it and eat yeah. it and that's all fine and that that's their kind of rationale i'm like one of the things like um you know in my experience obviously when you're dealing with a licensed ip um everything that you know, everything that I wrote had to go through Andy as the producer to make sure he was happy with it, had to go through Cubicle 7 to make sure they were happy with it, and also had to go through GW to make sure they were happy yeah. with it. And, you know, and very little that we put, we, I think we walked the line quite well. So Andy and I particularly would write things in a way that we were confident we'd, we'd get through approval. So we got very little that, that we had to take out. Um, and the thing that I am still amazed and proudest that I have managed to get through um, in the archives of the Empire Halfling Clans article that I wrote. Um, we, it's in canon now that, that halflings are polyamorous uh, and that they exist in this sort of um, polyamorous love nests together. That and it makes was, sense! <laughs> yeah, and like, you know, it's very much how we'd envisage them. It was how they were going to be in our head canon anyway. And I was like, well, let's just write it in and see if, you know, I was fully expecting GW to take that sentence out and they did not. And I'm like, well, good, good. Because it, it's you know, it's not presented in a salacious way or anything. Like it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. presented as a sort of part of their part of their culture. Um, so yeah, we, so, share, so that, that, we share yeah. everything here. <laughs> Ex exactly, um, and also the fact that they like it, it's things like people do things according to their their skills, right? Mm. So not like you know, I, I think. To, to not to get too serious for a second, but if we think about the real world, you know, there are people out there who are parents who might not be the best parents, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> the way it would work in a halfling community, if you're all living together, would be like, well, okay, this person's clearly not, so they have no interest in being a parent, so they won't. Someone yeah. else living in the house, because there's like, you know, 80 of you living in a room. So someone else there will, will, will be doing, who's good at the nurturing and the caring will be the parent. And that person's actually good at, you know, going out and picking pockets. So they're going to go out and pick pockets. And that person's actually good at haggling and making deals. So they're going to kind of run the legitimate front. And, you know, and, and th that was sort of the underpinning behind it was that they were a big mass and everything they did was kind of for, for the clan. And they very much believed in that. Mm. And that also then means if you're playing a halfling, um, you just imprint that onto your party. So your party become your your mobile clan, and and that's why you have loyalty to this group of humans or dwarfs or elves or or whatever. You they, they have become like your clan, and therefore you are looking after them. But also you will happily take anything that they've got, um, and and you don't mean anything by it. Um, and th the low havens in particular, like that that was a, a an intent to, as you say, to add menace particularly. Mm. So to go to go beyond the cheeky chappy burglar. You know, got to pick a pocket or two. Type uh, more cheerful thievery of of the halflings was was to add that little bit of menace in. And I really, 
like, and again, I'm, I'm not shy about this. I've, I've spoken about it a lot on our, our Rickery streams. Like, I'm an absolute magpie when it comes to stealing little Easter eggs and references from, like, high culture and low culture, right? So that you are as likely to find, like, a Shakespeare reference as you are to find a reference mm. to some TV show. Oh, I honestly um, think that's when Warhammer's yeah. at its strongest in a lot of ways, yeah. is this, this weird melting pot of just all these different <laughs> real-world yeah. uh, mythical yeah. uh, meeting places. Yeah. And, like, for, for the Low Havens particularly, like, it really... It really began in the in the, the very very obvious homage to the Sopranos um, in uh, in Uber Strike. So there's like a deli, <laughs> like a sausage shop, which is supposedly run by a Tilean family. Um, but then that was so that I could give it a name that sounded yeah. like the place mm. in the Sopranos. Um, but actually, everybody knows secretly it's halflings that are doing the cooking. What people don't know is that actually the whole thing is a front for the kind of low havens, and actually it's it's been used as a as a as a hub for their kind of like organized crime network in uh, in Uber Strike, and that was sort of the genesis of it. Because then I was like, right, so if it, if if it's like the Sopranos, then they're like you know organized crime and like not. I hate to I know nothing about real organized crime, but like very much, um, very much drawing on like media presentations of of the kind of mafia and mm. various organized crime rings, and and that was how I how we kind of went with it. I, along with that, there was also the thing about halfling names that was kind of already established, and we can definitely codified, which is that they because you know they have like really long like like um, I guess what's the word like not anachronistic but like unexpectedly um, highfalutin first names mm. that then get shortened to something that's much more silly. So everybody knows them as their little name, but actually they've got a big fancy classical Latin sounding. Yeah, kind of yeah. Mm. Um, and that allowed us to have quite a bit of irony in terms of what their nicknames were. So like, you know, one of the most ruthless low haven enforcers is called Mercy, for instance, and, and things like that. So you were able to have a bit of fun with the fact that people might meet a halfling called Mercy and think that, they, but actually they're a racketeer who would yeah. you know, break your race. <laughs> yeah, the, nicer, the, the nicer the name, the probably the more dangerous yeah. the halfling, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, and it was a real evolution like in terms of like you know because i've said you know i was involved with the halflings in the core book i was really involved in the low havens and kind of fleshing them out in uber strike and then when it came to doing that article for the for the first volume of the archives of the empire like i really wanted it to, to kind of flesh out because because a lot of the feedback i was getting was oh you know like how, how can you make a, a halfling racketeer halflings are so squishy halflings yeah. dying combat halflings <laughs> have to avoid combat and you're like well not if you've got the right combination of skills and talents like warhammer is very much designed in a particular way um they're smaller which yeah, means yeah if, if they've got fewer wounds but they're harder to hit yeah so that's, that's take, the thing is just you know, don't get hit <laughs> yeah you, <laughs> you, you boost your dodge you you go on the defensive as much as possible until you build up advantage. You take skills like you know, like particularly for the for the low havens, you take um, talents like dirty fighting and knuckle dusters and things, which means you're doing a surprising amount of damage. Um, and and you know, so suddenly you look like you're just this instant little halfling, and then you smack somebody, and you're doing like more damage than a pit fighter. You know, it's yeah, you know, again, dirt, dirty fighting is such a yeah. <laughs> such a nasty talent. Yeah. But you you would have to like if you were a half yeah. if you know if you were like you know three and a half foot tall in a world full of people that are like up to six foot tall or even bigger, um, like how are you going to survive if you're going to fight them? A you don't fight them, but if you are going to yeah. fight them, you, you you fight dirty. You use every advantage that that is there. So that that was sort of the rationale behind them was that they were like survivors essentially, um, mm. and 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 they had all like kind of almost adapted and like again that's why there were all the different clans that had their different niche in the empire society they had adapted to, to fill a space like there was a need for a space and those halflings adapted to fill that space um and particularly with the low havens then the power vacuum in, in uber strike meant that they were using that to spread out and proliferate into the right because their kind of background was actually they came from Nulm, um and 
you know, they'd had a little mm. presence here and suddenly there's a power vacuum and so they're exploding out. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and everything you said, it, it, it opens up so many great usages for halflings, whether you're playing as one or uh, just have, if you're GM using them, of like, like halflings make for a pretty intimidating intelligence network that is a lot more subtle than like the really Machiavellian, you know, big ones that are a lot more like, they're sneaky, but they're still obvious at the same time of yeah. like, yeah, you know, exactly. it's like, oh yeah, you're going to expect the big bads up in Altdorf to be, you know, manipulating the Imperial post or doing all this other stuff. You might not be expecting that the halfling pie seller is part of a network of halflings who pass along information very reliably yeah. <laughs> and they know yeah. a lot. <laughs> exactly. And you, and you, you know, you never see it coming with them because they, they, they smile. They're charming. They're gregarious. They're tiny. Our, our inbuilt human response to see them almost like a child means that you, you, you kind of keep letting them get away with things that you shouldn't let them get now, away I, with. I still think, yeah. I can't remember the character's name off the top of my head, but I, I still think my favorite halfling I've ever seen in Warhammer media depicted was there's literally a Gotrek and Felix book where there is a dangerous halfling like to Gotrek. Gotrek is a genuine threat and he's a gang leader. Um, yeah. And it's, they explain it as like, he's the only real halfling in this gang, but because he's a halfling, he's like 30 times more vicious than anybody else. Because yeah. for him, it's a, it's like, he needs to remind everybody that he's threatening despite the fact yeah. that he's small. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so there's that ruthless streak. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it was a lot of fun, like making, making those NPCs in the archives article to kind of show people how you could use, cause you know, there are, like there's a lot of really good stuff about about the rules in, in fourth edition it's not it's not exactly how we would have wanted it you know and the esc spoke about it before like it came on as producer partway through the process we had some fixed deadlines which meant that that some of the the book isn't laid out necessarily in as uh, user-friendly a way as we might like mm, there are some yeah. rules buried in the wrong chapters and that was just a result of immovable deadlines basically we were yeah. like right this chapter is locked now we can't edit it but we need this extra paragraph of rules it's combat, but it relates to a weapon, so we'll put it in the weapon chapter instead. It's not ideal, but it was all we could do at the time. Um, and because of that, though, it does mean that sometimes people miss some of the intersections between the moving parts and didn't see how you could balance things. So mm. making those NPCs was was sort of a, an attempt to, to begin the process of showing people how you could, like, without cheesing it, without doing anything particularly bizarre, you could just use the rules and options that were available to you within the careers to end up with characters that were feasible and were, and were quite different. And like I did a halfling grave robber as well was, was one that, that I kind of did in there. And again, that was, that I, I just, partly I was tickled to the idea of him having to carry a collapsible stepladder so he could get in and out of the grave. <laughs> um, but like it, it began with that. I was like, yeah. that's funny. But then actually you looked at the talents, like actually he's like a really solid character he's not as dangerous as a racketeer might be but actually you know he's quite tough and he's quite survivable and he's got a lot of very useful skills you're like oh i now want to play a halfling grave robber and that that's my sort of yardstick was if ever i was making an npc or, or coming up with a concept if by the end of kind of coming up with it i was enthused and was like i i want to play that then i'm like i've probably i've probably done all right there so yeah well it's like before i really had the chance to start um like um speaking with you and like Steve D and like all these uh, different people who like have really have a lot of really strong love for halflings. Like I used to definitely be the kind of person that when I would be rolling like a random race, I'd be like anything but a halfling, anything but a halfling. <laughs> <laughs> Just because yeah. in my head, all I'm thinking of is I'm going to be so squishy, but now I'm like, I'm genuinely itching um, to play one. 
because it's like the, the combination of things I could do between like that really high fellowship and um, a lot of like the high agility and all these other stats that I can use well. There's a lot of really interesting things to do there, especially with high fellowship. Like, I don't think a lot of people realize how powerful it is in this game to be able to like genuinely manipulate NPCs because there's so many talents that could be used even in combat scenarios, which is something that I love about Wolfrop compared to a lot of other games. Um, I feel like a lot of other games, like, you know, like with, with D&D, if you get into a fight, you you, you have to fight. Um, you got to fight your way out. With fantasy, like, it's like, no, I could, like, stack advantage and find an interesting way to get myself out of this situation instead of just smack <laughs> yeah. until somebody yeah. dies. Yeah, um, depending who you're fighting, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um I, I think that's such I think there's been such an amazing job, especially like because like halflings were in second edition, but I, I did not feel the allure of halflings in second um, and fourth, though, like it's it's there. Halflings feel very exciting. Like I God, I want to play a badger writer so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such an awesome thing. Like I thought I thought uh, crooks fighting cocks was the coolest thing that halflings are going to produce. And then I saw badgers. And I was like. Oh my god, <laughs> that's such a great idea. I I have to be clear, the Badgers is nothing to do with me. That was the that's that was someone else, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well so but it's like yeah. even just, yeah. just looking from like um the, the core book of just like uh there's so many like awesome artworks in there that really show halflings in all these really different positions that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Like I, I there's a good number of the fighting careers that have halfling art. Yeah. Instead yeah. of instead of just like a regular person to really like get the yeah. idea going for people there's one bit of art as well i think it's in the starter set i um i'm pretty sure it's it's a sort of like a, a it runs over two pages in, in making the rounds but i remember andy like very specifically commissioning it and actually sending it back to, to be tweaked because he really wanted to make the point of you know if you actually look at a halfling you you couldn't mistake it for a human child um because yes they have the, the height but they they have the width as well like mm, they are they're yeah. very obviously not they have like a denser um, you know, kind of like bone structure than a, than, a, than a childhood. They are more solid. Um, so, like he wanted that to be really, really clear in, in the art because in some of the earlier art, it was it was there, but it was maybe less obvious. And so there's like there's literally like uh, a whole bunch of like actual children running around, and in the middle of them there's a halfling, and it's really obvious that it's a halfling. And that was a deliberate point of of contrast to kind of yeah to pull it out. That's uh, yeah, that's great. So um, so with Ubersreich halflings uh bogenhofen i imagine was also something uh because kind of being part of that little fat shark trade back and forth um um what so looking at bogenhofen really important city really yeah. important city for wolfrup um and it's kind of increasingly become important uh you know like you know fat shark released like a whole set of maps for it that i i love and hate those maps <laughs> because they're such a nightmare to navigate um fair um what what for you so like looking at those two cities in particular what's kind of the process for um exploring the city and like making it feel alive and giving people options to really like explore them while still having like there are narratively important things to do but like really bringing those uh to life and having like fun stories for people to explore and stuff like that Sure. So they're a very different process for the two of them, actually. So I'll start with Uber Strike. Like, um, as I say, that that was designed to be like a, a starting sandbox for, mm. for, for people kind of playing. Um, and there were some locations. So we were very, you know, 
Andy and Lindsay, I think, have both talked about this when they were on, that we we like doing our research. Like we know a lot of this stuff anyway. We've been playing in a persistent campaign for like 15 years or whatever at that point. Mm. Um, so we really felt like we lived in the Warhammer world. Like we, we knew it that well. Um, but we, we specifically went back to it. We were looking at the novels, looking at um, the Fermentide games for Uber Strike, looking at, you know, there were a number of scenarios for Wifford Third Edition that were sort of set in there. Um, mm. So we kind of, we, we got copies of all of those to look through. And although like what we were writing was 2512, so it was like maybe 10 years earlier than the stuff that was in Third Edition, still looking and going, well, that would be the same. Or at that point, this would be, you know, so that we, we right. definitely were trying not to contradict. And there are a couple of points where people have thought they've caught us out in a contradiction and they are wrong. Um, but we there are certain things to do with certain bloodlines. We deliberately made it look like people are thinking it's a different person, but it's all to do with like the twisty relationships within the bloodline. Um, I don't want to say too much about that because it's a spoiler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if, but yeah, you know, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we kind of, um, so we start, started off with those. So like, like in terms of like the mental map, like, you know, filled in the locations that we knew we had to have in because they be, were mentioned in Vermintide or they were mentioned in these books. And we're like, right, okay, we've got those locations in. And then it was a question of utility. Um, so, you know, like an obvious one um, is you need a whole bunch of taverns because that's the classic role-playing stable. Uh, so like wherever you go around, you're going to find yourself a place where you can go and have some drinks and do some gossiping or whatever. So then we're, we'll put those in. But then we started thinking about what the careers were because, you know, the Wiffer, um like well, Wiffer in general is so driven by the career system. It's so integral, mm. how you make a character, how you play a character, what your relationship is with the world that, that, that you're in. Um, and in particular, in fourth edition, we tie that into social status as well. Um, and so what we began thinking was, well, okay, if you've got a character who's, who's in this career, like what type of location might they want to go to? Okay. Um, if you've got a character in this type, where might they, you know, like... Um, Within the obvious example, right? But we had the Dowie Hafen, so the little kind of dwarven enclave, kind of, kind of within Uberstrike. Um, and they were like, oh, let's put a shrine to Grimnir there because troll slayers are a thing. They're an iconic Warhammer thing. There's a yeah. good chance that a starting party is going to have a po Very popular there. career, yeah. Exactly. So let's put a shrine to Grimnir in. So that means that even if you've got a dwarf who's feeling shamed and shunned and isn't going to want to go hang around with the other dwarfs, they have a reason to go and interact with those dwarfs because there's a shrine to Grimnir there to kind of encourage them to go there. So it's that type. Of, of thing trying to go oh if someone's in the um i don't know in in like some kind of like you know river-based career well let's make sure that we detail stuff around the docks and the um the stevedores guild and the teamsters and let's have so so firstly let's have locations that they can go there and then in terms of building the adventure hooks let's have adventure hooks that will embroil them into the civil strife that is ongoing in uber strike and what wherever you look in Uberstrike, whatever building you look at, whatever you know adventure hooks you you kind of look at underneath the locations, there's almost always tension, right? Because that you need that in right. in a role playing game, you you need antagonists, you need um, forces moving in either way. You need to, your your players to either be you know fighting someone or stealing something from someone or returning something to someone or protecting someone or yeah, betraying someone. Yeah, it gives that motion or, that drive. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then what you're able to do is you're able to have. Like, because it's very much right, even more than writing a normal role playing adventure, which in and of itself is a very different challenge from writing a story, because you're 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 putting down the the, the parts of a story, like an IKEA kind of flat pack furniture thing, but you then let <laughs> yeah. let the people put that together to make whatever they want, right? And they might make a different chair than you made, but that's fine. Um, even more distributed than that, within the the setting, there are hooks that you could just follow that hook and that's it. But actually, the hook over there 
is on a similar thing. And if you've played through that one and then you play through that one, that might lead you to that location, which actually has another hook that then pays off to something else. And what you've got is like buried underneath it, these little invisible links between different parts of the city, between different social classes, between different um, organizations, guilds, groups. And all of that is designed to, to basically lure that party in to, to staying in Uberstrike and getting embroiled in the in the kind of politics and, and sort of tension with, within it. So that that was the, the goal with, with Uberstrike. And, right. and mm. it, it was discreet. Bergenhaven was slightly different because it it was a already so iconic within the the Wifford community, right? It's the you know the main setting for um, Shadows of a Bergenhafen or Enemy in Shadows, as it was kind of put together for for fourth edition in that book. And you know we we joke a lot about this, and like Enemy Within is a is a very you know iconic um, campaign. It is the it's the thing that really set the tone for what Wifford was going to be. It's the thing that right. brought, in terms of those influences, it's the one that brought the Cthulhu in, the, the kind of the, the creeping, insidious kind of threat and cultists and so on. Um, and a lot of people have played through the enemy within, or more accurately, a lot of people have started playing the enemy. Within. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you know, a, a, you know, a, a huge amount of people have played Shadows of Bergenhafen multiple times, and then a lot of them have carried on to play Death in the Reich, and then a significant chunk of them have carried on to Powerbind the Throne, and then it's largely yeah, it just keeps tapering off. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I, I know for myself, I have played through Shadows of Bergenhafen like six or seven that, times. It's, I think. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's a classic of like we yeah. so many tens of thousands of people have started empire campaigns in total war maybe yeah. maybe like a few thousand have finished it yeah, yeah quite. you get to a point where you're like i'm gonna start a new campaign yeah so we definitely you know when i was fleshing out bergenhafen like that like it was it was a lot of fun because i had the template been established that like, while we were writing we were like we were figuring out what worked as a template what was the right length what was you know what, what you know for a bigger location for a smaller location for an average location and, and how that worked we were refining our, our process so that was all locked in when i got to doing the work for bergenhafen for the, for the appendix there the difference is that that town because it's it's better known um by role players and so like Uberstrike was known very well by people who played Vermintide but you know it's it's a it's almost slightly post-apocalyptic um kind yeah. of um, <laughs> Uberstrike again there it's not it's not the bustling kind of actual normal empire town that we made so we had a lot of freedom in terms of what we did there with Bergenhafen we, we had less freedom and that's I don't say that's a, a bad thing like it was good to work within those constraints um but there were certain key locations that were actually integral to the adventure so you were like, well, okay, I'm not gonna, um, you know, I can't, I can't touch yeah, I that. Yeah, kind of have these like anything. anchor points yeah. to work yeah. around. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then, then it was a question of going, well, okay, what, you know, what, what are the things that haven't been filled in, and and what would be fun, and how do I make that not the same as Super Strike? Like that again, that was a conscious goal for me, so that if people wanted to, in, in my kind of head, if people wanted to, they could potentially take some of those Bergenhafen locations and actually move them into Uberstrike and vice versa if they wanted mm, to. Mm. You might have to take quite a lot of them because there, there were those kind of links between them. But but I wanted that again. It, it can we, absolutely be done. Yeah. 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 It, was, it was utility. We want we wanted everything we wrote to be useful. So if someone said, well, I'm not I'm not actually going to play the enemy within. Um, I'm sticking playing in Uberstrike. Oh, but there's a whole bunch of extra look. Oh, okay. Well, maybe actually if I've got that book, I can make some use of it. And also what we, we wanted, what often happens with adventure books is GMs buy it, read it, run it once and then never look at it again because they've done that adventure and we thought well let's let's put some material in that book that means it continues to be of value so somebody doesn't feel oh i spent all this money in a book that i've just used for the that those yeah. few adventures mm -hmm. you know um and you know and i also it was this because i didn't have to do as thorough a job i didn't have as many pages i didn't have as much space um 
I, I, I had a little bit more freedom to kind of pursue, for, particularly for the adventure hooks and, and what I fleshed out. I had a little bit more freedom in kind of what I kind of chose there. So, like, you know, I, I did things like um, I put the Masons Guild in there, but then mm. made ties to the, the Masons, like, in, in the real world. And the idea yeah, of them yeah, being yeah. part of us. Part of a secret cult that was nothing to do with the ruinous powers. It was just a, it was you know it was a normal mundane cult. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that, that was, yeah, 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 exactly. And, and and that that was my sort of deliberate choice was to slightly to, to play with that. So people go, oh, the Masons have oh no, but actually the Masons are like the Masons, but actually they're they're not that bad. They're not you know. Um, so things like that. But also, it was an opportunity to kind of flesh out um, and justify things that were necessary for the actual main narrative, right? So, you know, a, a classic thing of, of Warhammer is, you know, the, the, the basic setup for, for Wifurp is you are a bunch of randoms and, you know, you might have nobles, you might have wizards and priests like we do in Lawhammer. You might all be like rat catchers and beggars and barge hands and, you know, really, really kind of like, you know, working class, nobody cares about you kind of characters. And then you discover something bad is happening and the authorities will do nothing about it. And so you have to do something about it. Right? Mm. You can't you can't rely on the watch or the nobles or the cults to, to fix the problems for whatever reason. Sometimes because they're evil and corrupted, sometimes because they just don't trust you because you don't look trustworthy. Um, you know, there's there's all, all manner of kind of reasons for that. Um uh, and it's the same reason why like children's authors uh, almost always like kill off the parents, right? Because there has to be a reason why the kids are the ones yeah. who have to fix the problem. Yeah, right? can't because, just be like, oh, I found yeah. this problem, please fix, yeah. Exactly, they, 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 can't, they, they can't have a responsible adult around because that will take away all the drama from the, from the story. So in the same way, we have to justify that. And like the classic one, this is very minor spoilers for Enemy in Shadows. So if you're if you have if you're going to play it and you haven't played it yet, skip ahead for, for by about a minute because um, <laughs> it's it's what happened in our stream just last week. Um, but you do when you go down into the sewers, you do encounter a demon, um, and uh, you know the obvious thing within the Warhammer setting is you go talk to the Cult of Sigmar and you're like, "There's a freaking demon in the sewer. Do something about it." Yeah. But if but if they do, if the Cult of Sigmar are like focused and are, are good and do their job, then that kind of takes away some of the jeopardy and 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 you know and, and the, the kind of you know yeah, it, it, yeah. Uh, it's like oh okay we'll send yeah. in the witch hunters y'all can leave <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah I was like oh great problem solved so but then I was like but how how do I justify them not doing it but also not throw the cult of Sigmar into the bus um, and so I think I think what I did there was I ended up with a, a high priest who is not a blessed priest is just more of a political operator. And is more interested in just you know kind of working, which is not a bad thing, right? Because Sigmarites are all about bringing the empire together and unity and working together. So actually, having a politically motivated high priest in a in a high temple of yeah, Sigmar would be critical. Yeah, exactly. Is that, is, that's Especially a good when you're thing. Dealing with like burgermeisters yeah. and other guys. Yeah, exactly. So so he actually is doing his job right in terms of that. He is not equipped for dealing with the martial destroying demons side of things. That's just not his area of expertise. Mm. Um, and sure, he could write to the Grand Cathedral of Altdorf and somebody will arrive, but by then it's too late. Like, you know, yeah. you're, you're dealing with that, that imminent threat. So that so it was things like that. It was going, well, how do I how do I make sure that I flesh out the, the Temple of Sigmar so that it has NPCs you could actually, if you're spending time in Bergenhafen, you, you as a, like, you know, like Father Leopold to take our adventure, like could go if we weren't in the imminent you know, doomsday clock threat of the of the mm. campaign we were playing through. He could go and spend time in that Temple of Sigmar, um, and he wouldn't be like, "Oh my God, they're all heretics," and he'd have to, you know, burn the place or whatever. Mm. 
but but by the same token, also they are of no use to me in my current present situation, and th- and that was what I was sort of trying to to write. And lots of the other systems, like I fleshed out situations around like the magistrates, the merchants' guilds, and things, which are all featured like quite like integral to the plot. Mm. But I kind of added in some of the unnamed well, extra characters. And I, and... I can tell you from personal experience, you did a great job on that because like I Thank like you. in my in my Sunday games, so like the game I'll be playing later today, <laughs> um, like I play a uh, Sigmar Witch Hunter in those. And like when I had, it was my first time in Bogenhofen. Uh, I had never, it, it's my first uh, playthrough where I think we're getting close to being done with Death on the Reich. I don't know. Death on the Reich is very hard to gauge where you are in that adventure. Um, <laughs> but um, like I was trying really hard to get the Sigmarite Church. And it was so well written that the GM was able to do all these really clever things of that. They were actually a powerful tool, but I had to learn how to use them as a political hammer to yeah. really threaten and mess with the merchants but like yeah. we uh despite the fact like we we had like a goldsburg level scheme that we tried to pull off and it would have worked if it had been for fucking gideon but uh, <laughs> like, like uh i hate that guy yeah, i hate that guy so hate much gideon. Yeah. um <laughs> so much uh but it's like bogenhoff blew up like we we failed but bogenhoff <laughs> died and it was it was brutal <laughs> Um, but like, I love that. Like it, but in the GM had so many awesome little tools of that. It wasn't just like, I'm not, I'm genuinely not calling out these specific adventures. I've never GM'd a D and D campaign, but I've played in some D and D campaigns that are, uh, I don't want to say railroady, but they provide you the very specific materials to, this is the adventure about your characters. Not, this is a living space where you can run an adventure in. Yeah. Um, I think they've gotten a lot better with that with time, but like a lot of the classic book, you know, it was about a dungeon. You know, it's about running a very particular linear experience. Therefore, the book becomes useless after yeah. you've done it, um, yeah. which is just not the case with Wolfrop. Like I've, I'm all, I'm in a my, uh, I'm running my own group now through Enemy Within, and like I've played, I think one or two other times, uh, though those didn't finish uh, doing Enemy in Shadow, and they were completely different experiences. Like. A key moment would happen. I'd be like, "Oh, that's that moment," but it is wildly different because, like, different characters are doing different things, and like, even characters where I'm like, "Oh, well, this is guy is obviously this person." No, he wasn't. <laughs> they did something different. <laughs> well, well, that's it, and that's obviously the challenge that Andy's got with Lawhammer because, like, he's running it through, and like, you know, um, uh, Lindsay and I both, like, particularly me, like, worked on the enemy in Shadow mm. Speak. So, you know, but again, like, beyond the broad, like, you know, like, I knew we were going to go to Bergenhafen. I knew the Schaffenfest was going to be there. I know there's going to be awful stuff, and Morsley's going to cause problems. Like, those broad strokes, I, I know yeah. are coming. But I, you know, it, it's a it's a sort of trust thing as well. Like, Andy knows I'm not going to derail the adventure by going, oh, I'm going to go to find this particular merchant and kill them yeah, before they yeah, cause my... any problem. Like, it I'm would gonna, be blindingly I'm gonna, obvious. Yeah, I'm going to go look yeah. for a small child in this one guy's house and strangle yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Immediately. And, like, and, and, and what Andy's also doing is obviously he's changing things as well. Um, mm. And he's changing things partly just to make them different. But he's also then, like, I'm reasonably confident he's been changing things since Father Leopold entered the Augur career. Like, like th- things have changed a little bit now. Um, and I don't know if you've seen this week's episode. Uh, I, yet. I haven't I haven't seen what y'all filmed this Friday because I oh, yeah. unfortunately no. I was busy. I am yeah, caught no, up no, otherwise. Yeah. Like, I've seen, cool. I've, I have, man, binging Tales in Altdorf. Oh, nice. Like amazing amazing also just like you're sitting there like 
oh yeah, I got time. And you look and you're like, oh, this is gonna be how many hours? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> it worked quite well. But I had I had to travel quite a bit that week, so that was what I listened to in the car. As I, I listened to everybody else's tales uh, in the car as I was driving around. Um, but there's a, a thing that happens. You, you'll see this is not a significant spoiler, but in the, this most recent episode, there's a point where having left, you know, because we we dealt with the, the demon the previous week, right? Having mm-hmm. having left the sewer. Um, like Falupel, like still feels the the kind of corruption um, wherever he goes, mm-hmm. and so he can't identify what is or isn't on holy. When he enters holy ground, he knows he's on holy ground again. But when he leaves, when Everything he's just in Bogenhafen, yeah. it all feels unholy. The whole of Bogenhafen <laughs> feels unholy to him. <laughs> but it, but it doesn't to Yume, our blessed uh, cleric yeah. of Renal. Um, she it's working as normal. Um, now, whether that's because Ronald is a sneaky, tricky god, and therefore whoever it is that's causing this problem is... You know, whether it's because Leopold as, a, as an augur um, yeah, is more, more sensitive, sensitive to that yeah. kind of stuff, you know, yeah. it, it, could, it could be either. I don't think we'll ever get a straight answer, and that's just how I like it, because we're dealing with, you know, metaphysical things that are beyond kind of mortal ken. But it added a really interesting wrinkle and then a really interesting dynamic in, in the kind of inter-party relationships and things. And, like, that's something that never would have happened. And you will, like, I'm, I'm spoiling nothing, but <laughs> I think you're going to find this week's episode very funny, particularly the ending of it. And then you're going you're gonna to listen to the ending and go, how did we get there um, from where we kind of started? Because we don't entirely understand and we did it. Um, so yeah. I'm saying I'm saying nothing, but it ended in a, in an unexpected way. So. Well, I, well, just watching watching your tales go from oh, I'm going to go to this meeting to uh, what a day later being like I don't have eyes anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that was. A, uh, if you'll forgive he did the pun, not lose them the way he, you thought he was no. going to. Yeah, I definitely thought he lost them a totally different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and if you'll forgive the pun, uh, I didn't see that coming either. Oh my god! Um, but yeah, sorry, <laughs> so sorry. Um, but yeah, but it, but it, it was interesting because it genuinely, it genuinely came out. Obviously, Andy threw me the threw me the the dilemma of right, you can enter seer or or auger or or not. Um, and I was like, yeah, screw it, let's do it, let's let's go somewhere different. Um, and uh, and and that was fine. And it was only after we were talking about like wh- what, we, and I was like, oh, you know. Um, I, I, I thought, because he was like, when you take the talent, you lose your sight. Um, and I happened to have a bunch of XP banked, so I could mm. actually take the talent immediately. Um, and I said to him, oh, you know, what's funny, like during the, the conclave, like I actually thought t- to myself that brief moment when Leopold had the revelation that the reason seers were blind is because, you know, the ruinous powers can affect the world and distort your vision and, and trick you. And so if you can't see the material world, you can you can see more clearly what's actually gonna gonna come sort of through your your prophecy, through your augury. I, I genuinely had this brief mad moment where I thought Leopold's gonna pop his eyes out. And I thought, no, that's horrible. That's horrible. That's <laughs> yeah, I, insane. I, I, I remember there yeah. being that moment where I'm like, he's about to scratch his own eyes out, isn't yeah. he? <laughs> you, you, you could feel it in the air. Yeah, you could see it on my I Lindsay often says this on the inside the Rickers that I have a terrible, terrible poker face. Um so if, if a funny <laughs> comment comes up in, in the chat or whatever, or if an interesting question comes she says she can tell that i've seen the questions coming and i've started thinking about it because it's really obvious in my face but i did have that thought but i suppressed it but then when andy and i were chatting i was like well i had this thought and blah 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 and he said well and we and we discussed it through it's, it's the nice thing about about playing in a campaign with andy is he's very collaborative as a gm so we did have that that conversation about what would be the most characterful way for him to do it. We're like it has to be him 
Um, it has to be, you know, Leopold's choice. Mm. I mean, it can't be something Sigmar does to him. It's something that he chooses. Um, and that, that very much feels on on brand for him. And then the idea, the fact that he's this from this order of the Silver Flame, that he's actually from, like, although he himself is from Uberstrike, his order is based in, in kind of Middenheim, um, protecting the Sacred Flame of Ulrich. But we've got to do something with that. And and so it evolved into into what happened. Man, it, 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 it was, A, it was beautifully done. B, it felt like a cutscene on Dark Souls. Like... <laughs> This is absolutely something I think I've seen happen in Elden Ring or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, kind of going back to the, there are like two things I really want to ask about. So going back to the cities for a second, um, for someone that is, um, and this doesn't even necessarily pertain purely to Wolfram, but if someone like sees a city on the map or like they're, they're doing a campaign and they're just like, okay, I'm getting from A to B, but I'm going to pass through these places. And I want to make them a little more interesting. What would be kind of your advice to someone that has very little experience kind of ex taking something that has like, I've got a name, I've got a dot on a map, I know vaguely where it is. What is your advice to try and breathe some life into that? To kind of like expand a little bit, make sure when my party gets here, they can have a good time. And it's not just going to be me going, uh, what do you want to do? And they say something and then you're looking at your bank of names like, oh God, what is going to be the, you know, does this place have a Smith? What's his name going to be? <laughs> you're yeah. just in there, like if, if you're really wanting to try and make the place feel more alive, what is your advice to doing that? Well, I mean, I, I, like part of this, because I think you're right. I think in a, in a lot of adventures and again, not to, I'm not, you know, shitting on D&D or anything, but like a lot of the older D D stuff, particularly, like it, it still was quite generic, right? In mm. terms of the setting, so there might be a really interesting story and really interesting, like villainous NPCs that you were kind of engaging with, but then you would be passing through standard medieval villages with standard medieval taverns everywhere you went, and everything mm. was kind of interchangeable and kind of the same. Um, and there are exceptions to that, obviously, and and as the you know the lore has deepened, it has, it has got much better. Um, but that's the key thing is you want to try and avoid that, right? You want to try like if you go to different cities in the real world, assuming you stay out of like shopping malls and Starbucks and things like that, if you go to actual cities, like they're different. <laughs> yes, right? uh, I um, <laughs> yes, I've yeah. arrived in a new country. I will now go to all the places I already know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like if you come, I don't know if you've ever been to, to Edinburgh, for instance. I have, um, I have. Yeah, beautiful right? city. So, it's, it's lovely. I mean, but it's like it's really odd, right? Like yes. it's got it's got it, right in the middle. It's got a giant rock with a castle on top of it literally, that you can see from almost like, anywhere. It, it literally so it looks like someone came on a ruin. Was like instead of like knocking, we're just gonna build on top of it. Yeah, and it'll be fine. <laughs> and then, I'm just gonna put glass on top. It'll be great. Slightly further over, you've got like a big extinct volcano called Arthur's Seat. This big giant hill just rearing out of the city mm. that's even taller. You've got um this large park called the Meadows, which is what used to be a lake that then got drained and now is this kind of kind of big massive park right mm. in the city. You've got the old town, which is which I love, but I remember I, I moved to Edinburgh when I was seventeen, and uh, the amount of times I would get lost in the old town because. It, it streets go under and over well, and around, and, and, and you'd be down. You, you'd be down there, and you'd be going. I want to be up there. I don't know how to get up there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, is, walking round and round in circles. Yeah. It is legit the most fantasy feeling city I've ever been in on my yeah. travels. Of just like I, I was underground and then above ground, and then I'd be on a bridge and I'd be like, wait, I'm that's still exposed to the open air. How the fuck do I get away the yeah. hell down there? Yeah, like, exactly. Where am I going? I could see it if I could teleport. I'd be fine. Google Maps then, is 
very interesting yeah. in Edinburgh, by the way. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. No help at all. But then you go like 50 miles west, you go to Glasgow, right, which is, you know, um, a, a bigger, actually a bigger city than Edinburgh for all that Edinburgh's the capital. You go to Glasgow, totally different, totally different style of architecture, totally different layout, much more grid-based. Um, in the centre, obviously, you go out to the, the suburbs and, and whatever, it's all it's all kind of different. Or you go to, to Aberdeen, or you go to London, or Manchester, or Birmingham, or all these cities. Like, and the same, obviously, true in, in America. I've not been to that many cities, but even just, like, when I, I went over and worked briefly in America in the, in the late 90s, um, and I was mostly in the sort of eastern seaboard. So, like, you know, New York and, like, um, Philadelphia, like, you know, they're not that far away from each other, and yet they're very different. You walk mm. around Philly, you walk around New York, you know which of those those cities you're in, right? They're very different. So that's the the kind of philosophy to take when you're making a fantasy city is it should feel different. Um, and then you're like, well, why does it feel different? Well, it might feel different because of the climate. It might feel different because of the architecture. It might feel different because of the culture. Um, and trying to kind of establish that, thinking through the the history of that town. How, how did it begin? Was it a fishing village? And it's grown and grown and grown. Is it on a crossroads because it's trading port, port? In which case, well, you know, it'll be very cosmopolitan. There'll be lots of people from different cultures kind of, kind of coming in. Is it like a fortress town? Is it somewhere quite remote, quite different? Is it you know those those types of things um, give you the the general flavor of the architecture? Like in if you look at the Bergenhafen book and the Überschreit book as well, like the sections there that are like arriving in Überschreit, uh, mm. and it talks about how you get there, what the countryside is like, what you see when you first kind of arrive. Like like have that picture clear in your head, that zoomed out view of what's this city a little bit like. And and then start fleshing it out. If you jump into fleshing out the locations without having established like the character of that city, mm. it, it it's going to potentially either end up feeling generic or it's going to end up feeling disconnected, like a random bunch of locations that you've thrown together. And that's not the worst thing in the world, right? Um, there right. are I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know shit on any particular towns, but there are definitely towns I've visited that felt like that. They felt random. I'm like, why is that next to that? Oh, Those please. two things I, don't belong. I, I could take you on a lovely tour through the panhandle of Texas where you're like, right. why do people still live here? Why did yeah. they choose to live here in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> There's like 50 of them. And- and, and sometimes those can actually be fun to write deliberately, yeah. like a, a town, a town that should have died and hasn't. And you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. Why are people still living there? And what you know, um, it's good. And I will give a, a little shout out here um, to uh, over on our kind of Lawhammer streams. Andy's been doing a series of videos um, on a town called Callaghan um, that he's sort of been mapping. Yeah. Um, and, Awesome, and what awesome he's what, what he's doing is it's it's like a little lore dump as well. But he's he's having these conversations, and the, the kind of patrons and people who are kind of in the streams and talking to him are are kind of giving him inspiration, giving him ideas. Um, and then he's saying, you know, and they're kind of talking about the history of the town in order to justify how it's become the the, the town that it's kind of become. Um, and and you kind of obviously, you know, unless you you are a particularly devoted GM, you're not going to have. I don't, I don't I think he spent like 30 hours on it or something. There's maybe more than that so far. Yeah, don't, like, don't do that to yourself. Yeah, yeah. You, don't, you, don't, you don't need to spend that level of, of, of obsessive detail that Andy has because he is a perfectionist. And, and, yeah, and he's um, got problems. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. But, but that, that, that's my big advice is, is get the big picture character, get the flavor of what type of town is it, then zoom in again, what are the main districts and neighborhoods within it? And those can all be kind of different. And steal. That's the other thing I would say. Be a yeah. magpie. Steal from steal from from the real life, right? So in um, oh my brain's going like Uber Strike. In Uber Strike, there the posh section is called Morgan's Eiter. 
right? Which means Morningside. And in Edinburgh, there is a posh district called Morningside. And I, I literally <laughs> was like, we will, yeah. we will call it Morganside, and I will base it on Morningside. And it's a very kind of like middle class, very, you know. Well, yeah, you, like, you use what you know is a really yeah. strong system. Yeah. Like, like yeah. even... And, 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 and yeah, and, and you can steal it from like obviously I stole a lot from Edinburgh, um, but you can steal from like you know st- like London is a great place to steal from because there's there's so much history there as well. Um, so you're not just stealing from the character of the, of the district as it is now. You look back through what it was in the past, and you can like oh I can steal that, I can steal that. But any anywhere you visited, anywhere you live, anywhere you've read about that seems interesting, just magpie it. Just say I'll have that, I'll have that, and then spin it so that it fits inside your fantasy world. That's my, my main advice. Awesome. Um, and then the the second thing I really wanted to ask, because just because I can tell you, like you're you've done a lot of it and oozing with passion for it, is mm-hmm. that when someone is going to play Wolfrup and like mm-hmm. they're they're making their first character or like they're kind of in, interacting with the world, what would you kind of say for those people is kind of the the secret sauce or the recipe for making a enjoyable to play character to interact with the Warhammer world, like? Um, of like a lot of people for D and D, it tends to you know it, it it's very like class specific a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Of like, what kind of powers do you want to have? And because D and D, you know, all the classes are very bombastic in a lot of ways yeah. when it comes to combat scenarios. You know, Wolfram doesn't really have that. Like, there are classes like that of like, oh, you want to throw spells? Okay, you know, or you want to be like able to shout about a god and things happen. You know, but those are kind of exceptions to the rule. What would kind of be your advice if someone is pretty unfamiliar with role play or in like kind of the Warhammer world to really be able to bring something to life that's uniquely them? Cool. So like it really is like like Warhammer is much more of a game in which characters like live in that world, if, if it makes sense. So like the careers that are there, some of them, you know, map quite nicely onto your classes from D&D, right? So you can be a wizard. Um, you can be a blessed priest who can who can do miracles and things. You can be a fighter. You can be a knight. You can be those types of things. But also, you can be a clerk. Um, you can be a rat catcher. You can be a beggar. You can be a villager, right? You've, all those sort of generic careers are in there. And they all have, like, four tiers. So you can become, like, a village elder if you really wanted to. Now, that career probably isn't in there for PCs to aspire to. Maybe it is. You might be running a, a particularly odd campaign and that you're all living in the same village for like 40 years. Well, you, you I, do that yeah, if you do, do an Ubershot yeah. campaign, open yeah, a shop, you could. a really important um, thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but realistically, those are more often there for fleshing yeah. out the NPCs and, and the world that you're living in. But the, but the fact is that you would know those people. Like your character isn't just a random murder hobo who's, you know, spawned in the world in order right. to kill monsters and collect gold, right? They, they were a person who had a life before this this story began and so thinking about what that is and what was really interesting was um for for the lawhammer stream like this is the first time in a long time that i haven't done random character gen um like we randomly rolled our stats and our, our starting talents and stuff like that and our our you know um uh, heights which is why loophole is so ridiculously tall um <laughs> everybody everybody forgets loophole is so ridiculously tall because he is also there with an elf and a, someone who's even taller because birdie's one birdie, inch taller my than lord him, so. um yeah um but um like so that that was different like we we knew andy knew he, he wanted to have like a blessed priest of sigmar he knew he wanted to have uh a bright wizard he knew he wanted to have you know and and so we all once the, the players were all sorted, we all discussed which ones we most wanted to play. And I was like, I'll play anything. So I I took who was left, which is Leopold, and I'm very delighted with that because I'm having having a lot of fun with him. Um, but normally I would say embrace the embrace the random character gen 
um, that is in in the kind of Wilfred Core book. Um, but it is possible to roll something that you hate, right? So embrace it, but with options. Like what I what, what we've done quite often. In Just a lot be of warned, it is games. addicting. It's like making yeah. a new character oh, in like any game. Totally. Like I've yeah. I've wasted way too many hours. Yeah. Just creating characters I will not play. It's, but it's just fun. It's, <laughs> it's hands down my favorite thing. I once when I was a kid had the champions role playing system, uh, which was like a superhero uh, system, and I I, li I literally never played it. But I spent like <laughs> hundreds of hours. <laughs> I I made up like a hundred 150 characters mm. just That's every because i was a kid I was superheroes i was like what superpower can i think of and then i'll make them as a character but um but with this like like embrace the random um but equally you know if 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 you wrote you know i would often say like, make up more than one random character and then work out which one you think's most interesting but what i hugely recommend is doing that with the rest of the party and don't immediately go i rolled that i don't like that i'm gonna start again but rather roll it and then talk to each other about it. Like there's a character and we never ended up actually playing it. Um, but Lindsay Law and I rolled up a, a pair of characters that we ended up deciding that they were going to be um, half siblings. Um, and like I'd rolled like a duelist, like a fencer. And she, I can't remember if she'd rolled, like if it was a wizard or if it was a herbalist or, or something, somebody who had some healing skills anyway. And we, we basically came up with this backstory that they'd been part of a traveling carnival um, and that, you know, th th that's where they were. And, and it just, because our random talents also kind of fed into to those kind of things. And it, we built up this really interesting backstory for, for these sort of two characters that, you know, it would be very easy to, oh, I've rolled a fencer, so, right, it's an ego Montoya from The Princess Bride, but I'll file zero numbers yeah. off and play something generic. But <laughs> instead, it was, yeah. it was somebody who who does sword tricks for money. You know, like, that's what they do. And that like, that's a very different way of playing that type of character, so... Mm. Um, well, yeah, yeah I, I think that's a really. I, I wish I, I wish I had done that with my my party now, because uh, like rolling them individually, it tends to be much more of a how do I imagine yeah. myself, yeah, justified playing this character as opposed yeah. to how are these guys going to work together. That also saves yeah. you the convenience of yeah. how the hell do you know each other, which is exactly. often like one of the exactly. most annoying uh, things yeah. for new players and a new GM. Like yeah. nobody, like I, you know, yeah. everybody meets in a tavern is. Poor, poor horse that thing is dead yeah. it's so dead oh yeah yeah oh yeah that's that's been flogged that's not even bone anymore that's just dust now. um i uh i i recently started running running i mentioned before i'm a teacher uh running a, a game of, of work for, for some of the students in, in my school i teach at an all-girls high school here in edinburgh and um uh, and it, it was great because they approached me about running something role-playing because they saw me i was wearing like a, a nerdy like D, &D themed t-shirt and they're mm. like, oh, do you do? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, we do. And I was a bit, but it's really hard to play. I was like, I'll, I'll run something for you. So I decided to run them through the starter set with her because I knew it so well. I knew Uber's right. So I was like, we'll, we'll just do that. But I, I did exactly that. I got them all to roll. And then we all discussed together how I didn't want them all to know each other, but I wanted everybody to know at least one other person. So we ended up with, I had an outlaw who had randomly rolled noble blood as a random talent. Ooh, that's good. I'm like, right. <laughs> and I was like, right. So I was like, you've got options here. Are they a bastard? Are they on the run? And then, you know, her friend who was in the group randomly rolled up a soldier. And so we came up with this elaborate backstory that she was a noble, but she didn't get on with her father. Um, and I think, I think we actually, um, I think we actually made it so the character was non-binary and that that might have been part of the tension with the with the mm, father mm. in terms of in terms of having an heir. Um, and so th they had kind of like fled from from their father's home, and the soldier had been their childhood best friend, having grown up in the castle, was sent out to bring them back with the party, but then just deserted 
found them deserted and ran off with them and, and was sort of kind of protecting them. Mm. And then we had I had a I had a hedge witch and a witch hunter who who were twin siblings because they rolled. Ooh, okay, that's fun. They, they rolled. They they randomly rolled the same height, eye color, hair color, and I can't remember what it was, but there was one of the random talents that they both rolled the same one as well. Uh, and we're the, like, the dice gods decided. Yeah, the dice are saying <laughs> you guys are twins. So we came up with a whole thing where she was a hedge witch who was going to be sent to kind of infiltrate. Uh, the Grey College, um, and uh, the Witch Hunter knew about the Hedge Witches and was being sent to infiltrate the Witch Hunters in order to protect the Hedge Witch Network as well. So, you know, we were, again, and that's a payoff that's never going to happen because I'm actually moving to a new school after the summer, so someone else is going to have to follow that seed. But we set that there mm. so that there's a potential long-term party tension. So they knew each other, and then two other characters knew each other, um, and then I had another group of three that were on the run from Altdorf, um, and then I threw them all together in Night of Blood so that they kind of, you know, kind of bonded as a party um, that way. Yeah, yeah I, so that's, that's I, 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 I don't know how I've never thought of that. That's such an awesome way to do that. Because, like, all of my favorite characters I've ever made have been me collaborating with my GM. But it helps yeah. when you know a lot about the universe and can be yeah. like, oh, I know what framework I'm going to yeah. work in. Um, but, yeah, working with someone else, um, that yeah, that provides so many strengths. Especially, yeah. like, yeah, that, God, that works really I, well. I, I, particularly for a new group because particularly for me i was like you know a handful of them had played D before but half of them had literally never played role-playing games they'd watched stranger things uh and they wanted to but they did not really they didn't really know it and i knew that they would find putting on a character's voice and talking character a bit weird at first yeah and i thought how do i make that easier for them well if they're doing it to their friend then that's fine and if they all crack up and giggle a little bit that's okay it doesn't matter because right. it gets it gets them more comfortable with with kind of what they're doing in the role playing so yeah um so and that the kind of talking about chatting with other players zinged me there was one thing i really wanted to ask you about in particular because it's something that i think a lot of people like the idea of but really struggle with um and it's something that like i learned with time and i think most people learn it with time but it's it's a scary skill which is combative scenarios so like mm -hmm. one of the best things about watching lawhammer um is father loophole especially is that father loophole is you know he's so he's so um doggedly determined in his faith and uh set in it that he naturally has conflicts with other characters because when you have a character that's very set in their ways they're gonna conflict with fellow pcs um, so you have all these like really awesome arguments between him and Alamenowith mm -hmm. where they're constantly clashing about certain concepts and ideas. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say is kind of like the player uh, advice or player Bible when it comes to having kind of those player versus player interactions without it becoming uncomfortable or without it yeah. being like, well, we're going to start rolling dice <laughs> and like, yeah. swing at each other and stuff. <laughs> Like, uh, what what would you say is kind of like your method or your thought process when you're in those kind of scenarios where you have a character who's like, no, my character would like take issue with this, but keeping it uh, where it's like it's still a fun experience. Yeah, well, I think there's I think there's two sides to it in, in terms of, of keeping it right. So the first side is the interpersonal side, like within the actual people, the, the, the players, mm. right? So like Lindsay and I are really good mates, right? Like we've known each other since like I was 18, she was 17, right? We've known each other for like more than half of our lives. So we know that if our characters are arguing, we are not arguing. It's our yeah. characters <laughs> that are arguing. So we're okay with that. If you've got a brand new group with new players who maybe don't know each other that well, like don't immediately have them at each other's throats. Let them get to know each other. Let have a bit of a laugh with them. Let make sure that nobody's going to take offense at it. It's the sort of out of character risk. 
the in-character risk is that you derail the story through stubbornness, right? Mm. Like you have to acknowledge that you are all there to tell a collaborative story. Um, and, you know, we're, we're really trying in Lawhammer to get that point of, you know, we will all take turns to kind of metaphorically step up and then step back from the spotlight. Um, and, you know, you you should absolutely stay true to your character, but if you stay true to your character to such a point that it derails the campaign and stops the story and stops everyone else's fun, then that was the, the wrong sort of decision. And there have been times when, you know, there, there have been points where Leopold has wanted to kind of carry on making a point, but I've sensed from Andy that it's time to move on. And I'm like, well, I'm not this, I'm just going to keep prolonging this argument for the sake of prolonging this argument. Yeah. Leopold, Lu, you know, we essentially are, you're almost kind of like, you know, fading away to the sounds of them bickering in the background and assuming that that argument carried on and nothing was resolved. Um, so, yeah, so that, that that's a thing. And there have been examples where, and I'm sure I've done it, but I, I, I definitely am aware of some of my, you know, friends when we were younger in our campaigns who've done exactly being like, well, my character, you know, wouldn't go into that dungeon because blah, blah, blah. And we're like, the adventure hook is literally telling us to go down. <laughs> you know, like, like, it, come well, on. That's where the it, camera's going, so. Exactly. And that's really, I, I wish, I wish we'd use that metaphor. Yeah. I said, okay, well, you can stay here and you can literally go and sit in the kitchen on your own for four hours while the rest <laughs> of us go down to that dungeon and have some fun. And then I'm pretty confident they would have changed their mind at that point. Um, but the, the, the key thing is, is that, you know, we also talk about it out of character as well. And we're not, and that's something different that we're doing for, for Lawhammer. And we're not scripting them or anything. But like, so to take, for example, the ones you mentioned, like Leopold and Alamenoi, like they are like deeply allied together. Like they, mm. like, like Leopold knows that Alamenoi is the key to them potentially averting the apocalypse. He knows that without her, all is lost. So he knows that, right? Um, and she, you know, and she like absolutely values him, probably not to quite the same extent, but, but does value him <laughs> as well. Um, but they they do have very different perspectives on the world. They do have very different agendas on the world. She doesn't understand his faith because how his faith manifests is not how it works with elves. She mm. doesn't understand that. But she, as an elf, can't. It isn't necessarily. I'm putting words into her mouth here, but I, I don't believe <laughs> is is comfortable admitting to ignorance, um, except in certain situations where she's absolutely comfortable admitting to ignorance. Um, and so a lot of attention has come from that. A lot of attention has come from, like Lindsay does a very good job of thinking and communicating as Alamena wife very differently from as, as Lindsay, so that there is a very fixed mindset that Alamena wife is looking at things through you know that kind of lens, mm. and Leopold is looking at things through that kind of lens. And there is some overlap there, but there is also a lot of, of a lot of real difference. Um, and we did realize that after the, the most intense argument that we had like two or three weeks ago, um, afterwards, we then realized that we, we actually were genuinely trying to agree with each other. But I was exp expressing it through Leopold's yeah. way of, mm. his paradigm. She was expressing it through Alamenoi's paradigm. And it sounded like we were totally disagreeing. So we were <laughs> arguing, arguing, arguing. And they were like, we're actually trying to say the same thing. And at some point, I think, either on a stream we're either going to do a flashback of that conversation or or something we've, we've got plans at some point when it's not as narratively pacey that we're pushing through to flesh out how leopold and, and alamena yeah, kind of death that. on the right <laughs> death yeah. on the right yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. 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 busy <laughs> yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, that's a it's a ticking time bomb <laughs> um that's awesome that's awesome um that's a lot of great advice um so I've, I've just kind of been watching the chat casually as we've been mm -hmm. kind of chatting and stuff. And a couple of uh, questions come up that I do think would be uh, interesting kind of hear your thoughts on. So one person yep. asked of when it comes to like playing Imperial halflings, like playing a halfling mm -hmm. that's been born, and raised in the empire, never been to the moot, has a lot of human interactions. Mm -hmm. 
Um, would you have any advice for playing a halfling who kind of has like genuine um, relationship with like the empire gods versus like a more typical halfling? Like they, they or actually are a Sigmarite or they've been kind of raised yeah. within those communities where they don't have Esmeralda or the regular halfling gods. What, what would that kind of look like if you were giving advice for them? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's interesting because I think you still, you know, you, 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 I guess the question is where they came from. Because if they're, if they're part of the halfling clans of the right clans, even though they're not in the moot and haven't been to the mootland, they're still, you know, if they're a Havertown mm. or if they're a Thorncobble, they're a Thorncobble. They've, they've lived with Thorncobbles. That, that, that's what their life has been. So the obvious thing to do would be to to, to be like a, a Lost Pockets. So to be a, essentially an orphan halfling, right. halfling who doesn't have a clan, um, who maybe then has been let in. Like there is a, an NPC that we did that was a basic, uh, was it in Uberstrike or is it Bergen? I genuinely can't remember. It's all blurred together now. Um, but there was an <laughs> NPC who was like a halfling orphan who basically was sort of raised in a human orphanage along with humans and then they all grew old and died and then, and he's still like you know yeah. like 50 60 years old he's a beggar i think i think it's one of the i think it might be one of the ones i did for the archives article actually um and like essentially it's this slightly tragic figure who who you know had that you know the the, the classic story you get in vampire novels and things about you know or, yeah. or else, or about or, you know one yeah very old thing with a lot of things that die, yeah like mayfly exactly yeah. <laughs> so, so you, you kind of have that but with that, that I was very much focused on them being like a beggar or a thief on the streets of Altdorf like like being that kind of you know kind of character um, so it wasn't particularly religious I mean I think that the, the whole question of religion in Warhammer is interesting right um, because. Uh, and I just, I don't, I, in case I, I'm going to put a little disclaimer on now, I, I intend no offense to anybody. So if I accidentally say something offensive, uh, I, I do apologize. Um, in the real world, I am a, a committed atheist, right? Just to make mm. that, that clear. Um, but the difference between like the, the faiths in Warhammer and, and the real world, like beyond the fact that it's polytheistic um, kind, of, kind of pantheon that, that you have there, is there is tangible proof that these gods not only exist and are real, but that they they manifest things oh, yeah, on the mortal plane. Someone, someone like, in our world, called hammer. Out, yeah, yeah, someone in our yeah. world called out to God and made a hammer burst into flame. I'd be a lot more convinced. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, like, wow, right? right, exactly. So, so what faith means in that world is very different from what faith means in in our world, right? It's not, you know, does Sigmar exist or not? Although there is the Sigmarine heresy, and is he a god or is he not a god? Mm, so, yeah. that, that will definitely come into play later on in the Enemy Within campaign. Um, so, so there is that. Um, but the, the reality is that everyone accepts the existence of the gods. Um, it then comes down to how much respect do you pay them? Like that, that's that's what it's mm. about. And for most people in a polytheistic society, you appeal to the relevant god at the relevant time. Right, so um, if you know somebody has died, you make an offering to more to look after them and sort of sort of shepherd their yeah, soul. Yeah, even though um, you probably yeah. a lot of people don't like to think about more outside of that. Exactly. you know, death, <laughs> scary. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's considered ill omen to kind of mention his name because if you're not a priest, because you might draw his eye on you, and that might mean that you die. So you know, like, yeah. so you do your best to do it, but at the right time, you're like, well, now is the time to respect that god. Um, and what we really try to do in in um, in fourth edition, was add in the fact that there are lots of like little gods as well, like Bogner and Grandfather Reich, and mm. and you know yeah, all, all these every, other gods. Every yeah. sizable tree, river, stream, lake, mountain <laughs> that probably yeah. got some kind of thing going on. Yeah, and and something that that people may or may not have picked up actually from um, from Leopold's backstory um, he, he, when he talked about um, 
why he got kicked out of Sal, which is when yeah, he was a priest in the mm. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, it, it, the thing was just sort of briefly mentioned, but it was a blessed priestess of Thyra that, that he was with. Um, so that shows that even these smaller gods are, are also real and also manifest these kind of miracles. Now, what that means metaphysically um, it is open to... I don't know what Andy is oh, yeah, that would, that would open. Yeah, that, that's when you get yeah. to the really fun... <laughs> exactly. I, I, I know what blessed priests were in the cosmology of Andy's old Warhammer world that we saw through to the end until it blew up, but I suspect it's different um, in, mm. in this world. But yeah. Um, so yeah, so were you to have a halfling then, to go back to the question, a halfling... So, you know, I, I think... I think certainly, I think a halfling would, like in the Empire, even if they were part of like the, you know one of the clans that was established there and spent most of their time with halflings, they would probably very quickly understand if they were a halfling who cared about the social niceties of the Empire, they would learn to, to pay respects to the appropriate gods at the appropriate time. They might not believe, it might not matter to them, but they would do it I, I, I want to say there's a note are, in either yeah. the archives or the core book for halflings where it's like halflings have kind of that better safe than sorry philosophy yeah. of like I may not believe in this god but I'm not going to risk pissing him off like yeah, I'll just exactly. uh, yeah whatever or, cool or exactly or risk pissing off the people who do believe in this god yeah. as well you know um, and it, it also is, and again it's not a, a question of they go well Ulrich does Ulrich exist or not like they know Ulrich exists they can see blessed priests they can see divine symbols they can see a bloody white fire burning in the temple in, in midnight. Yeah, is no, it relevant to feel. what I'm doing exactly. right now? Yeah. I, exactly. Is, is he a god who pays any attention to me? Do, do I, you know, like an Ulrich with halflings, like probably not because they're not legendary warriors, right? Yeah. Um, but, but were they to have to, were they about to go into battle and were some humans making a prayer to, to Ulrich and like, you know, splashing beer over their weapons or whatever as an offering? Would a halfling warrior do the same? Yeah, probably. Um, to to kind of to blend in as as much to appease the god as to appease the humans who believe in the god and so, and and worship the god. If that makes sense. Um, now, if you were to go one step further and have you know suggest that you know had a halfling who actually like believed so much in a god that they felt the calling to actually enter the, the mm. cult of yeah. that god. I mean. Absolutely, you could do that. That thing would be really interesting. Obviously, you know, by the core rules as written, halflings aren't allowed in, in those careers, I don't think, because you know, halflings aren't allowed to get the you know blessing talents that let them kind of kind of do mm. those kind of things because their relationships with the cosmology is, is fundamentally different because of their, their physiology. Um but you know, you most priests yeah. in the cults are not blessed. Um, right. most yeah. of them don't take those talents they take the other talents and, and kind of go through most player characters do because it's fun why wouldn't you want your hammer to burst into fire yeah. but um but 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 in within the cult they're a minority i mean even when leupold went to the conclave and saw that there were hundreds of blessed priests which is far more than he was expecting he was still only hundreds out of a cult that numbers in the tens of thousands if not if not more right um so it still is a tiny tiny percentage of that cult yeah. that, that, that are blessed um so Unless you're messing with the cosmology, which hey, it's your hammer, and if you want to, yeah, you absolutely there's can. There's exceptions to every rule. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but but the halflings almost certainly wouldn't be manifesting miracles and blessings, but they could absolutely enter. It. And and again, the the key, whoever it was who asked this question, like good good question. The, the key to is is this an interesting idea? Is right now I'm thinking, oh, I, God, like a halfling priest of a human god would be quite an interesting character to play. Somebody who. Who has you would have to come up with the backstory as to why they chose to dedicate themselves to that one god in particular. Like if mm. it was Sigmar, like were they were they orphaned and raised by humans who were devout Sigmarites and they got it from you know and 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 this is almost like a 
uh, a penance or, or a payback for the fact that somebody took them in and cared for them, that they're now honoring their wishes by by kind of like per, you know perpetuating the mm. the cult that they supported, something like that. Or is it you know like if it was say Shalia, you know, are they someone who is gifted at healing and is good at that type of thing? Um, but for some reason, but they're not particularly motivated by money because you know that's the funny thing about halflings that they're excellent thieves, but they don't actually mostly care about the acquisition of wealth. So they're not going to train to become a physician, or maybe they weren't allowed to go to university to train to be a physician. Right? Yeah. Like so, the the end of the we're a halfling in here with all these expensive instruments. Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like- Whereas if if you had a good-hearted halfling who wanted to help people, you could see them entering the cult of Shalia. Um, so I think I think it definitely could be could be interesting, and it is the exception, not the norm. But that doesn't mean that it's not an interesting character. But the yeah, opposite. Well, I, mean, hey, very yeah, interesting yeah, the, I mean, the player characters nine times out of ten tend to fall into that exception, yeah. not the norm <laughs> group. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like most people find a demon in the sewers and they're like, "I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're done here." Yeah. I mean, to be fair, half of our player characters wanted to do that. As well. I, oh <laughs> so, my god! I was sitting there like, "Are they? Are they they're just going to leave this thing down here? They got a bright, yeah. bright wizard. Do your job." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean to be to be fair, El- Elric didn't want to leave, and Lupul didn't want to leave. Uh, but yeah, oh, Lupul, uh, Gerhard- was a, Lupul was having yeah. a bad time. <laughs> oh, oh, my dice! <laughs> like dice were so bad. Oh my, oh my god! I rolled so many fumbles, so and then would re-roll, and it'd be like ninety something. You're like, oh my god! And he got there eventually. <laughs> but like you know, Lupul's like the the core things he's good at, like core, uh, so like cool prey. A melee basic, like he's pretty good at those. Like his skills are sixty. His praise like seventy nine. It's insane. Um, yeah, yeah. When, hey, when, when eighty four, eighty nine. There's one thing oh. Blood Bowl has taught me: if Nuffle decides you're screwed, you're screwed. Like there's yeah. no, there's no matter how good you yeah. are, there's no getting around it. But it, it it built. It's a good example of how random dice mechanics can build narratives. Um, in that you know, like you know, he, he you know, blessings weren't working, and his things weren't working and he tried to back off off of the unholy ground but he couldn't he felt like he couldn't back away from it um and eventually he's like well i have to just try again and so he centered himself and he tried again and that time he passed flame and a hammer mm. right time to go back you know um so it it, it built that up and th- that is the kind of thing that happens to us more like more often than not I remember we played through the ashes of Middenheim um uh adventure in mm. second edition yeah. Um, and there's, there's sort of a climatic fight. And my character, because second edition, if you play it rules as, as written, is brutal. Uh, first three characters, absolutely yeah. brutal. Um, yeah. And, I, uh, I've had some unfortunate yeah. experiences as a GM of like yeah. introducing someone to the game and was like, oh, we're playing Raw just because I hadn't, yeah. I wasn't old enough yet to really understand that you should probably fudge it. I literally had an opening scene of like they're defending a small town from some Beastman Raiders. Not a lot of Beastman. One of the Ungor archers just goes, Pew, and just nails a guy, crits him, crits again. <laughs> <laughs> and he just dies. He just gets shot through the throat with an arrow, and you're just like, yeah, that's it. yikes. <laughs> well, I had, so, that, so Ashes of Middenheim was like the first in like a three-volume campaign. And in the climax of that first one in Middenheim, we were fighting against some some corrupt priest. My character at that point had already lost all of their fate points. Um, and then right at the end, uh, I my character rolled a crit and basically lost his left arm. Um, and was bleeding out, but wasn't dead yet. <laughs> so he could keep fighting <laughs> until he died. Um, and uh, so I f- carried on fighting. And in the next round, I rolled a crit on the guy we were attacking and cut his arm off. <laughs> he died instantly. I then failed my blood loss roll at the end of that round and died at the same time. Beautiful. Um, and you're like, and that was all done randomly. That was all random rolls, but it just it gave us that narrative balance that was just you know. Yeah. yeah. Just, oh, oh yeah. 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 
Well, and that that kind of stuff, uh, especially if your character survives, <laughs> can, can yeah. make for such yeah. good like storytelling. Like um, yeah. like going back to my experience with my witch hunter, um, the the whole the Gideon incident um, of if like he was literally he we did a whole big scheme. He got involved in the scheme because we didn't realize that he was aware of it in a player because uh, I never played it. I didn't realize Gideon was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so when suddenly someone turns into what Gideon turns into, it was like, oh, this is a thing that's happening. Um, <laughs> and we couldn't chase him down. Like, we, you know, we were using the pursuit rules and we, we just rolled like ass on the pursuit. And he was rolling really good and like tried shooting him and he kept making his stupid fucking ward save. Like he just wouldn't <laughs> go down. And... Um, and that ended up leading to Bogenhofen being destroyed, uh, like played immediately into that. And yeah. I decided to run with that of like my character, like I went to, um, I went to flagellant for a little bit after witch hunter. Cause my character, it's like a crisis of seeing freaking Cairo's fate. Weaver <laughs> destroy a city. And, uh, and then I went into runner because my character became obsessed with this idea of, I can never be that slow again. Like I can, I can never allow an opportunity where speed was the defining deciding factor between like victory and defeat. So I went yeah. from being a movement four character to being a movement six character. Nice. <laughs> like, like, that's, never again. <laughs> but that, that's, that is what is so nice about the, the career system that underpins. With oh it, yeah. It's, God, it's such a good system. It, it's that they are, it's how you interact with the world. It's how the world interacts with you and you can make those changes based on, on what happens through the story. You know, the obvious example being, you know, Birdie entering the, the Bargy career because we were spending some time on a barge. Leopold entering the Augur career because he had an opportunity to literally get divine visions from, from Sigma. You know, mm. um, th those those things that represent a profound change in, in what your character's doing and, and how they're going. And, I would say yeah. the career system is easily the best feature of Wolfrop, like flat out of just like your character can adjust as the narrative does. <laughs> or just as experience does like like you could start the same you could you could play a career starting as a sewer jack a hundred times and still end up with a wildly different character yeah. after not yeah. that many sessions because you're no. just gonna be, like depending on your party comp and what's happening to you you're gonna end up with different things like i've got my witch hunter went so i went from like basic witch hunter to uh, i think i went uh flagellant then runner then i went back to witch hunter to like level up a tier because yeah. i finally got the trappings i needed and now i'm going into physician because like yeah. i i because when we like we crafted a little charter for our boat on death on the reich and my witch hunter ironically was the party uh was the the doctor for the boat because he was had the heal skill because he yeah. had it for torturing people but yeah. <laughs> like he's like, That's what he, I was gonna say. he knows it's, bodies <laughs> exactly. if, if you've learned how to open them up and take them apart it's, it's not a huge leap to learn how to put them back together again so yeah, yeah. But it's like it's like oh well now i'm kind of leaning more into that of like there's more situations where like our our captain who's a very big warrior Ulrican, keeps i i cannot tell you it's been at least three times he has critically gotten critically injured and he always rolls pulled muscle for the same arm <laughs> like every time so every time it's about to heal he ends up adding like another 17 days and it's like jesus christ but, like <laughs> but, that, but that kind of makes sense right it's like yeah. a niggling injury in blood bowl right like it's the same old wound that keeps you know so you just, you just have this yeah. angry witch hunter in every uh who now has gone into position because he's like you gotta stop doing this yeah. <laughs> keep the cast on i don't care what we're fighting <laughs> <laughs> oh i love it <laughs> but it's like those make for such good 
being able to lean into those storytelling elements is is such <laughs> a unique thing because like I don't I don't know of any other system where you can do that. Um, at least not off the top. No, of no. I mean, there's there's other sort of got elements of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's so because social class and social status is so tied into the Warhammer world, um, I, and also because it is it is much more of a living, breathing world than because it, it's benefiting from you know what 30, 40 years worth of lore and backstory. Yeah, um, I, yeah. So I had to break it to it, you. It's it, it's, it's yeah, close. Yeah. It's more of forty now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't say thirty um, anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean. From with no, oh my God, no, you're right. Yeah, but that was 86, wasn't it? Oh God. Yeah, I oh, think Warhammer started in 1985, 1984. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, dearie me, dearie, dearie me. Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, it's like I I feel bad when people are you know I I love talking with people that have been playing it their whole lives, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, like I started with six edition. They're like, oh, really? Like six? It's like, yeah. Well, you know, I was nine years old, so. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, ooh, yikes. <laughs> but hey, that, that it's it's part of the strength of the medium. It's been around for yeah. well, exactly. so much and it's like it's just yeah. been constantly added to. Yeah. Um well, exactly. And and for all that that does cause continuity headaches, as has been discussed at length before about different editions and contradictions. Keeps and, me employed. And stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, exactly. But but also like all of that stuff, like it's all good grist for storytelling, right? It's all rich depth in that world which which does mean that you can have characters to go back to the question you asked a long long time ago about bringing characters to life like you you can you can do that like when you look at the the description in the in the core book of the main sort of like towns and cities in the mm. in, in the kind of reichland like they've all got different character just, just you know um because and some of that was stuff that we injected but some of that was stuff that existed already um and like we, we didn't so it's a weird you know writing setting stuff for Wurfrup is like a weird combination of well y'all like, y'all did ar- archaeology and creativity i it's was so thrilled that y'all put in which i imagine was a fuck ton of of a pain in the ass and effort of not just being like okay we're gonna release like a modern system for an old campaign of no we're gonna take all these different versions of Warhammer and create one cohesive yeah. thing. Like, cause I, I, I like, I will always fully admit like when Wolfrep started a uh, fourth edition, I was not a fan of it. Like I got the core book and I was like, I don't recognize this empire. Like this is the empire I grew up with. This is like, like this is, there's all these weird provinces. I don't know these elector counts. And, and then, and I was like, yep, not interested. Like just not interested. But then, like, the Enemy Within started coming out, and every once in a while, people would reach out to me and be like, man, have you read, like, this new, like, story thread about how, like, all this stuff's happening? And once I finally put it together in my head that it was like, no, it's it's a moving narrative, and it's going to the Empire I know and exactly. love. It was like, exactly. holy shit. And then yeah. I spent an ungodly amount of money. So yeah, that's, that's, that's I, I wish that, I had been buying them yeah. as they were coming out. It would have been great. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that was very much Andy's grand evil master plan of, of taking it from including the stuff that you'd recognize from first edition, including the stuff that, that people recognize from the tabletop game and bridging those to, to and sometimes it is a you know, question of perspective, like and they yeah. don't contradict each other, they're just a different focus. But sometimes there are contradictions, but the narrative is built in so that you can change them. If you want to, you know, the, the, the nature of the enemy within campaign. And again, I don't know how Andy's going to end it, but I know that, it, that, that as written, there are multiple potential endings mm. depending on what your players do, what you do and do, do successfully, but also decisions that you make. 
um, can kind of kind of influence that. So, yeah, well, yeah. And, and it kind of leads back into that. Like, there's there's so much player agency, um, wildly, um, which and especially when it comes to like creating characters too, is like because you have that forty years of background. There literally is an exception to every rule because like there's there's stuff that like kind of has functionally been retconned because it like it doesn't necessarily make sense, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means maybe it happened in a different way, and you can yeah. you can explore that. It's like, yeah. like is there a halfling of Sigmar? Yeah. Probably not. But it, does that mean there can't be one? No. I, I mean, when when you exist in a world where cosmologically, you know, one of the great threats is a chaos god Sinch that can literally change reality. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, like it, anyway, it's it's like having the Scarlet Witch, right? In in Marvel, like they're all yeah. the time. You can, can literally boom, change it. It's that now, and you're like, oh, okay. And obviously, you don't want to overuse that, but um, but it but it is there as as a way that you can reconcile anything, um, in Warhammer. Yeah. So someone asked, uh, if you're pl- so, does that mean if you play through the enemy within all of the books affect the ending or only the last book? No, they all affect it because, like, yeah, if you're playing consistently <laughs> through the story, like if characters die or if things mm-hmm. happen. That's yeah. going to have a dramatic impact on yeah. what happens yeah. at the end. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, again, I can't speak too much because I don't know. Like, the, I was involved in uh, Enemy in Shadows uh, and the beginnings of Death on the Reich. And then, so I know what was there in the older versions. Uh, and I know what we had planned. Uh, and we will see what happens when Andy plays it through. So yeah. I don't, I, I deliberately haven't well, read. And every the GM, every GM's going to do it different. Yeah. Every GM's going to do it different. I deliberately haven't read the updated versions of Death and the Reich and Power Behind the Throne, just in case Andy does take influence from any of the Gronyard boxes or anything. I was like, I just I don't need to read those, so I won't. That that way, he, it's slightly easier for him to surprise me. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I see another question from chat that kind of was similar to the halfling question of playing between Empire Dwarf and a Mountain Dwarf. Uh, I will say, if you want like a lot of specifics on that, Archives of the Empire Volume One, awesome for that. Literally has a chapter for Imperial Dwarves. And a chapter for Grey Mountain Dwarfs. So we're still waiting yeah. on like a proper Karazankor supplement. Yeah. One day, yeah. maybe. <laughs> but I have a, I, I have a, I have a thing on dwarfs actually. So it was interesting because, like, obviously you spoke to Lindsay a lot about dwarfs, and she spoke about the the idea of the mean matriarchal and sort of justifying their mm. their sort of clan structure based on her. Like we all we all draw on what we know, right? right. So Lin, Lindsay obviously did a psychology degree, so she draws on all of her kind of experience from that. I did English literature. I did, you know, like books. That's what I do. Um, and like I, I had never really wanted to play a dwarf until like maybe a couple of years ago. And now I really, really, really want to play a dwarf because I read uh, a novel called Birdsong by Sebastian Fox, which is about the First World War. Um, and it features some of the characters in it are sappers, so people who dig under the trenches to try and undermine trenches. So vast swathes of this are are written kind of like underground in these confined spaces, and it's incredibly well written to the point of I, I like almost had a panic attack reading it at one point because it it described the claustrophobia of being trapped underground so well, um, like not in a, mm. like it wasn't full up, but it was it was it was like I could feel my heart going and my breathing restricting, and of course I didn't stop. I was like I'm going to press on. Oh, because yeah, I love it. yeah. <laughs> this is incredible. Um, it was like a real vis- visceral reaction, and like that gave me some insight into into what it would be like to kind of live underground and how everybody had to kind of work together, and then it that then sparked a little sign up connection in my brain with the the expanse i don't know if you've if you've read or seen the expanse of sci-fi I'm vaguely yeah. familiar with it because like, um, yeah, yeah it's it was pretty pop uh was is quite a popular show yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, well, the, the show's finished. They sort of finished the show after like what the events have happened in the sixth book, although there are three more books that, that kind of went on. But the, there's a moment in in there, and I, I honestly can't remember if it's in the show, but I know it's in the novels, where again, one of the groups of humans that you've got living in the solar system are the belters who kind of live out by the asteroid belts, mm. and they live in lower gravity. They spend a lot more time in spaceships or space stations. They don't, they don't live on a planet. Um, and you know, it's interesting stuff about physiologically how that's affected them, right. but also culturally and there's a moment where there's like a character who is whose responsibility it was for like changing the air scrubbers or something and he hadn't done that instead he'd been like using cheaper ones to, to kind of make some extra mm. money for himself and then when people find out like that's like the ultimate betrayal right because all of them rely collectively on the air that's coming through that and by him you know kind of yeah he's screwing everyone yeah yeah exactly and, and it just it, it just it unlocked something for me in terms of of what a cla- a clan would be like. Being in a clan would be like for dwarves living underground in the mountains, where you know, a you've got the threat of of the mountain falling on top of your head, uh, plus you've got the threat of the skaven and the greenskins and all, uh, spores mm. and all yeah. all of the things that, that that are potentially dangerous there, and how like egalitarian that society would have to be. So you still have you know nobles and royalty and and things, but. They they wouldn't be like human nobles and royalty. Who yeah, yeah, other people. different. Yeah, yeah. everyone's gonna pull yeah. their weight, or we're all gonna die. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and that that like that unlocked a thing in my head, and I'm like, oh, I really want to play dwarf now. I really, I really, I really want to explore that that kind of psychology, and it totally fits with everything Lindsay said about the matriarchal society as well. So yeah, yeah so like kind of uh, Grommetal, I think tying into that, a good way to explore that would be like for a regular dwarf, a uh, non-imperial dwarf. Like, an Imperial Dwarf is going to have an understanding of human culture, human norms, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, like, a regular Dwarf, like, humans are going to be annoying <laughs> to yeah. them in a lot of ways of, like, yeah. this idea that, like, nobles are just these fat, foppish people that don't do anything. They just collect yeah. money instead of, like, where it's, like, we're Dwarfs. If you're a noble, it's because of your clan's importance. Like, you're yeah. a noble because you're master brewers or you're master mm-hmm. miners or you're master yeah. smiths. Like, they earned that. Like, yeah, yeah, sure, like, there is a little bit of nepotism. Um, but you're still expected to pull your weight. Otherwise, you'll bring yeah. shame on your clan, shame to your ancestors. And that's a horrifying thing. Exactly. And it would mean that, you know, as, you, as they walk around through through imperial society, like they would see most humans as deeply dishonorable because they are yeah. they have their self-interest. You know, they have that level of they 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 lack that commitment. And then you and then that that makes you see, and I have really played that into how Leopold views Sigmar. In, in Lawhammer, like, you know, there's different aspects of Sigmar, but the, the big thing he believes in is unity, is bringing people together for that greater good, for that kind of, kind right. of you know, collective. And like, and so to, to my mind... Which is what Sigmar that, would want. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But like, Sigmar, Sigmar did that because Sigmar was a dwarf friend, because Sigmar understood what the dwarfs understood, that people were stronger when they all pulled together and had to put aside selfish self-interest in, in favor of, of kind of being a stronger whole. Um, and it makes sense of why there is that continued relationship between the cult of Sigmar and the dwarfs, that there is a fundamental ideological, political um, agreement, belief that, 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 mm. that they both share. Um, and, and that again, that just made sense of a thing that always felt slightly random to me. So. Yeah, yeah I, you know when you when you were saying that about the dwarves finding everyone dishonorable, it kind of made me just realize the dwarves would literally be the unironic version of someone being like, people wouldn't go on the internet to tell lies. Like, who would do that? Yeah. Tell lies? Like, no one. Yeah. Who would do that? It's like uh, yeah. dwarves would not do well with us. No, <laughs> they, no, they, they, they would they really struggle really with humanity in so many ways. Yeah. 
Um, we we all we also it's a, it's a, on a on a lighter note we we had a chat once about <laughs> we were talking about dwarf culture um, and dwarf cultures uh, as you'll see what that means in a second because we were thinking about like um, you know like like sourdough starters and how there are some sourdough starters that are you know really really old and they're like a family legacy that mm, gets passed on yeah and we're like can you imagine like dwarf sourdough starters that are like you know <laughs> millennia old and they were like that would be a great reason for taking the slayer oath right if you yeah. inadvertently destroyed or, or killed or lost your clan's sourdough star that was this unbroken line of tradition going back millennia and then you soured it and now your clan don't have their custom strain of bread anymore so time to uh, shave the head and, and would, go, go kill a like, yeah. that would honestly even for a human that would be nightmarish just losing yeah. like not even that old but like yeah for a dwarf that would be You'd yeah. struggle to avoid the slayer up on that one. Yeah. It'd be like I'm kind of. It's like that. That would be the first chaos or dwarf dedicated to Zinch because he's like, I need you to send me back in time to right yeah. before this happens so I can fix it. It's the only way. The only way. <laughs> um. Well, that's fantastic. Um. All right. So, uh, we are like hilariously over time. We were supposed to go for like an hour, and it's been two hours. Um. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're all good. You're all good. Like I, um, I, I don't want to uh, monopolize your time. Um, uh, but uh, yeah. So, uh, chat. If y'all have got any kind of final questions to slip in, uh, uh, unless you've got to like go right now. Uh, no, no. Too. But uh, if if anyone's got like a last minute question they want to slip in, uh, this has been so awesome. There's so many like great little uh nuggets and all these things that I I just I love the passion that you clearly have for it. It's like it's infectious and excellent like this is the best <laughs> aspects of warhammer is when people really are able to just love it for what it is um, well that's it i mean i've, I've like i've been playing in this playground for depressingly almost 40 years so yeah it's, uh... <laughs> um, i mean maybe it is closer to 30 for me I yeah, think. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta you gotta take those take those yeah. wins where they, you can get them <laughs> in fact in fact I, I can actually i can put a date on it um, because the first white dwarf I bought, I looked it up on the internet today to check, was episode was issue 127, which was summer of 1990. Um, that was the first white dwarf that I bought, and I had I'd already played the older version of I don't know if you make that Hero Quest, which is yeah like a, yeah yeah like a board game that you sit at miniatures. Like I played that uh, and was into that a little bit, and then saw white dwarf it had a dragon on the front of it. I thought that looks cool, bought it, and then got the white dwarf every month for like the next six years or whatever that's, that's, how, that's yeah. how they get you man it's yeah. Like my, uh, oh yeah my, my, i saw i saw a a dinosaur riding a bigger dinosaur and was like <laughs> for a nine-year-old so, me that was that yeah. was like i didn't realize that was an option <laughs> we, we i could have an entire race of dinosaurs um you know it's funny i still don't know why but i have a distinct memory of nine years old of when i my parents saw games workshop and they took me in because they were like this looks like a fun th I, I was not really into sports they're like this mm. looks like great activity and the, whoever i don't know who the employee was at the time but he did an amazing job selling my parents on he's like oh yeah they use math and rulers it'll help with like his spatial reasoning yeah. and all this stuff and like co high comprehension yeah. reading which he was right but it was a very yeah. weird angle to take for selling more yeah. ever it, it, it is it is the classic like having like Andy Law and I both used to work for for, for Games Workshop, and that that is literally the pitch that you use. But because because yeah. it is true, it's true. Oh yeah, hand eye coordination, creativity, all that stuff. Like my yeah. my reading <laughs> comprehension level was awesome, <laughs> yeah. but it's like 
I'll never forget going in and uh, uh, them being like, well, you know, what are you really into? It's like, oh, I love dragons. They're like, oh, we, you know, we got the dragons here. And I don't, I, I have no idea why, but I will never forget my nine-year-old self being like, what's that on top of it? He's like, it's an elf. And it's like, ugh. And it's like, why, why, why did I not like an elf at that age? I had no context for not, not liking lie. that elf. I'm still not a big fan of elves. Yeah. Uh, I did I did joke with Lindsay yesterday that I was going to come on here and counter all of her pro elf propaganda. Um. Well, you know, uh, when when we when I was going to have Lindsay on, I was like, okay, I have to focus on like talking about why people like elves because it's such a meme, and yeah. especially the Total War community where people just they fucking hate elves so much. Yeah. There've been yeah. so many traumatic experiences yeah. from like gotcha. like in Warhammer One, the Wood Elves. Like, yeah. there's a reason everyone calls Durthu Tree Hitler. Because right. <laughs> everyone hated him so much because he was just a nightmare and, to deal with. And in Wifrup, like, they are c- correctly, but they are, like, super arrogant. And, like, mm. that just, that just as consistently in, in my PCs uh, brought out. You know, I will... Weirdly, I, I love the Eldar in 40k, though. So really? I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I'm acknowledging my own hypocrisy there. But, I, like, you know. I yeah. will, I will never forget being young and listening to a. Maybe he must have been in his 40s or his 50s, but there was a man in my local hobby store. He fucking hated elves because he was a Mordheim player. And (laughs) the elves would have like three guys on their Mordheim band versus 12, and they would win because they were just such bullshit. They were so strong. Elf bullshit. That that is is the catchphrase that Dan has come up with for our stream. Elf bullshit. Whatever element might does something right. Elf bullshit. Well, and it works for Warhammer Lord too. It's like yeah. it's like how do the elves fight so yeah. many wars and yet there's still so many of them? Elf bullshit. Don't yeah. worry about it. Elf bullshit. <laughs> like and I and I, I love the fact in our demon fight, like Lindsay genuinely by rolling well managed to pull off some classic elf bullshit of like like running past the door, looking in, seeing the demon, throwing a throwing knife and getting a really good hit on it without breaking stride, and you're like elf bullshit. But the, the dice don't lie. The dice tell the stories. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, it looks like we're yeah it looks like we're pretty much uh good to go so thank you so much for coming on uh this was was a blast this was so fun um i'm going to uh turn i guess i can turn off the recording aspect and then i'll deal with the stream aspect but (laughs) because it's just easier (laughs) to deal with that uh but thank you all for watching uh this is gonna be the end of the recording or audio whatever so uh thank you andy so much thank you so much for coming on this was absolutely a delight it was a lot of fun thank you um be sure that you check out uh, Lawhammer and the Rookery. I'll have links to those in the relevant places. Uh, you can see Andy on both of those. Uh, you can also see him uh, playing Father Leupold in the Lawhammer campaign where he's doing an absolutely fantastic job. Um, and it, it's such a refreshing take on a Sigmarite warrior priest type character too. Uh, I mean, as much as everyone loves like the bald guy in heavy plate armor that just yells constantly and just is smacking yeah. people with hammers, there's a lot more nuance to be found within that yeah. Uh, yeah. character and it's it's great to see that brought to life I, I mean don't get me wrong if I could get Andy to give me play armor I'd absolutely take yeah, it yeah, you know? I, saw, I, saw, I saw what happened to your armor the second you got it no. <laughs> I, I loved your I loved your I still technically achieved yeah. my short term short term mission was to get it it wasn't to keep it it was to get it, yeah, it didn't, didn't even last a session yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, this is rough demons yeah. Demons. Demons. Uh, All right. Anyway, uh, so that's that.